Ladies and gentlemen, to those among you who are easily frightened, we suggest you turn away now. To those of you who think they can take it, we say, welcome. Sherlock Holmes. That funky classic was Who Done It by Tavares from the 1977 album Let's Hear It for Tavares, available on Apple Music. Does that get you in the mood? Are you ready to, to funk and to rock and to be with it? I know when I hear Tavares, I think Sherlock Holmes. So absolutely. I think <laughs> that's an awesome way to start off this episode about uh, the world's greatest detective. Yeah, so so tell us a little bit. What are we doing? I mean, obviously Sherlock Holmes, but uh, give us a little more. Well, this month, the delayed look at three films from Sherlock Holmes, the uh, master detective as created by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. You know, we have a plethora of Sherlock Holmes films to choose from. And this month actually was an idea of Carla's. This April was Carla's birthday month and she loves mysteries uh and and she you know it loves Sherlock Holmes so what she had seen of it she wanted to see more and that's how it kind of came about so we picked uh three films that kind of sample different eras of Sherlock Holmes we absolutely had to do one with Basil Rathbone because for many he is a definitive version of Sherlock so we're going to be uh taking a look at the House of Fear from 1945 then we couldn't do Sherlock Holmes without taking a look at Peter Cushing's version. So we're going to take a look at Hammer's 1959 classic Hound of the Baskervilles, the most filmed story of Sherlock Holmes. Uh, there are countless versions of Hound of the Baskervilles out there. And then uh, 1965's A Study in Terror, in which Sherlock Holmes does battle with Jack the Ripper. Gonna have some fun with that, and we will be hearing from Carla at the end. After we do all of our reviews, we're gonna bring Carla on for a few moments, which is a small feat. <laughs> no small feat, I should say. She she is not a person who likes to to hear her voice or to see herself on camera, but she uh, she agreed to come on and, and uh, say a few words on on Sherlock and her thought. I think that'll uh, that'll be fun to bring her on as well because this month was for her. She wanted to. Choose one of our themes, and I threw the I, the idea at you, and you thought it would be fun. And Sherlock, not necessarily horror, but I think the three movies we picked certainly, you know, dips its toes in horror. Baskerville certainly has some horrific moments. Doesn't get more horrific than Jack the Ripper, and 
as we'll talk about when we uh, go over the House of Fear, it was kind of an old dark house feel in that movie a lot, I thought anyway. So that's what we're doing this month, taking a look at Sherlock Holmes. That's right. I look forward to that and especially having Carla on. Well, let's go ahead and call the meeting to order. This is episode 43 of the Classic Horse Club podcast. I am Jeff Owens from ClassicHorse.club. And across the sea of time and space is... This is Richard Chamberlain from Kansas City Cinephile and Monster Movie Kid. Was that across the sea of time and space? What's that from? Is that a... That's not a Doctor Who thing, is it? <laughs> yeah, it, it, I don't think so, but it could be. That's our first Doctor Who reference this then. You did it. You, you opened that door. Yeah, I can't... I don't think I was clever enough to come up with that, but I like how that rolls off the tongue across the sea of time and space. Anyway, let's call the meeting order. Before we get to all that fun stuff, let's do a roll call of new members. And we have a nice group again this month, which is fantastic. That means our Facebook page group is growing. We first have Jeff Clark. And Rich, do you know... I I don't know Jeff personally, and I'm sure this is not the... Jeff Clark, but do you know who the Jeff Clark is? Okay, that you're 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 catching me <laughs> off guard. I, I've got several quizzes for you this episode. Okay, well, I I know the name, but yeah, who who are we talking? Jeff about? Clark is a character in Dark Shadows, the original TV series. Okay, so that's not where I thought you were going to go with that. I thought Jeff Clark. Now I'm thinking of somebody. Isn't there like a famous Clark director? I'm drawing a Bob movie. Clark. That's who I was thinking. Okay, Bob Clark. Okay. Maybe that's, maybe Jeff is his brother. <laughs> Welcome, Jeff Clark. We also have Brian Anderson. We have Tammy Anschutz. Tammy commented that she enjoyed the podcast and it makes her drive to work so much better. So that was nice to hear. We have Doug Fazenfrank, Charles Gohan, James Binge, Dennis Downing, and Randy Clough. So welcome to this new group of members on our Facebook group page. You too can become a member. You simply have to visit, send us a quick request. And unless you look completely fishy, I'm certain we'll add you uh, the next time we're in Facebook and see your request. Yeah. Welcome everyone. This has been, uh, you know, another big upsurge of, uh, of members. We've got a lot of people listening. So uh, we've been getting good comments from all of them loving the show. So Welcome aboard. Yeah, and we have some feedback. We do have a piece of feedback later uh, that we'll play probably after the uh, final movie. But just a couple comments I wanted to hear, uh, read here that people mentioned on the Facebook group page. So Bill Mize from the Bill Watches Movies podcast uh, mentioned that he loves Monster on the Campus. And that is a movie that, Rich, I'm going to plug you, you talked about on the Mimiverse monthly podcast. He listened to that and and shared that he liked that movie. And I will also mention that uh, his latest episode of the podcast is out uh, today as we're recording, which is April 25th. And it is about a movie, Secret Agent Fireball, which I don't believe is horror. Probably the kind of movie Bill talks about on his podcast. Have you seen that one, Rich? Uh, I have not. That's one I'm I'm really interested in. It's uh, part of the, the 60s spy genre. April was when we were supposed to get the new James Bond movie, No Time to Die. I think that's why he did that, was uh, we were supposed to be celebrating Bond this month. And of course, now that's been pushed back to November, late November, I believe. You know, meanwhile, 
I've been seeing a lot of Bond movies on television. Uh, the Epics Drive-In Network, which we have on Sling, does a lot of cool old movies like that. And they've been doing a lot of Bond films. And plus, uh, the Bond channel is up and running again on Pluto TV. So I think they had all of those planned to, to sync up with the new movie that ended up getting postponed. So there's so many films out there from that time period. And uh, they're a lot of fun, a lot of James Bond wannabes. So this movie, I found it on YouTube. And so I, I uh, have added it to my list, uh, my ever-growing list of films I want to check out. But I've kind of got almost a, a, a list of James Bond wannabes that I want to sit down and, and, uh, and revisit it or visit for the first time. So I think that's where it falls into, into play. All right. Our friend Nicholas Hatcher, he watched a Appointment in Samara. It's uh, a Karloff film that is shown as part of the movie Targets. TCM played Targets a couple weeks ago on a, a Saturday night. And as you know, one of my favorite films, we've discussed it here on the podcast. But I, I thought that was cool. He found the movie within a movie uh, on YouTube. So he shared that he watched that. He also watched Genius at Work, which we mentioned during our Lionel, Lionel Atwell episode, which has Bella Lugosi. And Rich, was that... Uh, Lionel Atwell's final movie, Genius at Work? Um, I There was a chapter serial that was released. I think it was released before Genius at Work, but it was actually the last thing he did. He, he died during the production of that chapter serial. Uh, but I think Genius at Work was the last film released. Gotcha. Joe Carson, he posted about a contest to win the big book of Japanese giant monsters, The Lost Films, Mutated Edition. I did, of course, register for that contest and did not, of course, win. Steve Turek shared his Diecast Movie Review podcast interview with Donnie Dunnigan. Uh, Richard, also plugging you again, you participated in this podcast with a discussion about the Seventh Seal. And while we're going, let's go all out. Rich, you are also a guest on Monster Kid Radio you and Derek discussed the beast from the beginning of time. I hope I'm not stealing anything from the end when we ask what's going on, but this is all stuff that's happened in the past. So uh, I thought I would tie it in here and, and share. I, this is terrible for a film buff to say he's never seen the seventh seal, but is it uh, any horror aspects at all? I, I, t- I don't think so, but. Um, yeah, there, there, there are, um, you know, and, and yeah, there's no shame because actually I had never seen the seven seal really from beginning to end. I had seen most of the movie in one form or another, but really it was my first opportunity to sit down and, and watch my criterion Blu-ray version and, and, you know, see it in all its glory and see the extras. So uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's dealing with the plague, very timely ah. man from the crusades, essentially, making a deal with uh, with death for a little extra time to take care of some some matters and so yeah you so you've got the the the, uh, the presence of death and they're playing a, a game of chess but it's also kind of a metaphorical game and you know not a straightforward horror film but yeah, when you got death lurking around in the movie I mean there's there certainly is a little bit of horror with that great I look forward to listening to that I am behind on all my podcasts. So whenever I do drive back to, to Minneapolis, I'm going to have to put them in some sort of order because I don't think I could even finish them on that uh, 10 or 11 hour trip. I, I, my, I'm behind myself as well. I was almost getting caught up, 
when I started working from home again, and and I know your work has been beyond crazy. Mine hasn't been as crazy, but it's been its own level of crazy as well. So that kind of takes up that that time for us to listen to podcasts. So I'm I'm just as behind as you are. Joe Pavlansky wrote, uh, we had asked people, share us what you're doing during the um, coronavirus, stay at home, quarantine. And, and he shared uh, that he's been working still. Most of his free time is spent at home reading comics. Yay. Working on his monster models, watching the Monster Channel and getting some writing done. Uh, he's also tried to be more active on the Universal Monster Army site and the Classic Horror Film Board site. He told us to take care and be safe. So thanks for that update, Joe. Sounds like you're keeping busy doing lots of fun stuff. Gosh, I haven't been to the Universal Monster Army site in years. Yeah, it's been a long time since I've been on there. Pamela Moore, she received her t-shirt. She was one of our two uh, 100th uh, members, and she posted a picture on the Facebook page. I got out my magnifying glass and was really looking, or I guess I enlarged the photo on the computer. She looks like she has a nice collection. I saw some Bride of Frankenstein and some Godzilla uh, stuff on the shelves behind her. So thanks for sharing that, Pamela. I was going to say, I finally connected with Matt. So I know with the delay in, in, uh, in mail delivery, as this episode goes live, you know, Matt might not have his t-shirt, but uh, we finally connected in it's been ordered. So hopefully he will be getting his soon as well. Great. Great. And finally, I learned about a new blog. It's called the big comic page.com. Uh, our, our member Jules Boyle has been sharing some links from that. He apparently writes a series on there called 31 days of American horror reviews. And he's been doing films from the post cycle from AIP. So pit in the pendulum, premature burial. Uh, he's posted links to that, those reviews and I noticed his Twitter handle is at Captain underscore Howdy. So you got to appreciate him from that. Uh, Rich putting you on the spot. You got to know what that is from, Captain Howdy. Well, that would be from The Exorcist. Very good. Very good. I, I just saw the tail end of that last night, as a matter of fact. It was playing on sh- uh, the Shutter, one of the Shutter streaming channels right before they started doing their countdown for... Uh, uh, Joe Bob, which hmm. its second season premiere last night. They uh, they've got three streaming channels now on Shutter, and, and they you know play a wide variety of stuff. But they were doing a John Carpenter night the other night. Uh, randomly was playing in the background. They did at least three Carpenter films. You know, for five dollars and thirty eight cents a month, which is what it costs. Uh, if you watch one or two movies a month, Shutter's well worth it. So, I, and they do have some. Some older stuff on there. They of course have a lot of newer stuff, but they they do sneak some uh, some older films. Not too many classic classic stuff, but uh, they definitely dip back into the uh, to the seventies for some of their things. So worth checking out. Yeah. So that's just a little bit. A few things that have been on our Facebook group page the last month, and those are the things you miss if you're not a member. So please uh, visit us and and request your membership. You can leave feedback as these people did there. You can also call and leave us a voicemail. And that's what Bill Mize did that we'll listen to at the end of the episode. That number is 616-649-2582 or 616-649-CLUB. Yay. See, you can do this thing remotely. We, we don't exactly. have to be in the same room. So, yeah. I don't know if we even shared that, that we are once again not in the same room. But I think we got pretty good 
recording results last month. So rather than delay, we want to keep things as normal as possible. Uh, we're, we're recording remotely again. I, I think the hopes are that, you know, we'll have a maybe a mammoth face-to-face recording session at some point this summer, which uh, I think I think will be fun to kind of reconnect that way. But meanwhile, this is working. So we don't want to skip a beat. Uh, so we're going to keep cranking these monthly episodes out. Coronavirus be damned. That's right. So let's uh, take a little break and then come back and get to it. I know we have a lot to say about Sherlock Holmes and Watson and Jack the Ripper and all the fun characters from these great stories. So we'll take a break and be right back. dive into the world of Sherlock Holmes. And I figured what we do is start off with kind of what my experience with Sherlock Holmes was, kind of how I got into it, how I first discovered the wonderful world of Sherlock. And then, uh, you know, Jeff, you could, you know, share the same with you as well as like, what were your experiences before we kind of dive into a little bit of history on on the creation and, and the stories of which all these movies are based on most of the time rather loosely, depending on the adaptation. For me, I my earliest memories of Sherlock Holmes would actually be in the 1970s, mid to late 1970s, watching the Basil Rathbone films on late night, Saturday night, when I was allowed to stay up. The local station played Sherlock Holmes and Charlie Chan Saturday nights at 11.30, and they would rotate. Sherlock Holmes one week, Charlie Chan the next. And I remember that it was mid to late 70s because I remember watching it on our color television in our family room that was built on the back end of the house. And we didn't have cable yet. And that would have been my first exposure. And then I I, I don't recall seeing Sherlock Holmes on television again until probably the 1990s, aside from the Jeremy Brett series that was on PBS, uh, which started in the late 80s. I do remember watching that rather religiously. I think it maybe even started in the mid-80s. And that's a w- wonderful adaptation. We'll talk about Jeremy Brett in a little bit. I 
really fell in love with Sherlock Holmes at that point. And I remember getting a book, not the complete works of Sherlock Holmes, but fairly complete, nice hardcover edition. I, I got it at a bookstore very randomly. I saw it. I was like, oh, I, I've got to get this. And it's got wonderful production. It's it's a It features the original artwork from the Strand magazine. Uh, which just enhances the the reading experience. I read that you know religiously for for you know weeks on end. I was I was just diving into all the different stories, and then wanted to get the other stories. There, I think there was three others that were a novel and some collection of short stories that weren't included in the edition that I had, and and I still have those paperbacks as well. And I found those and. That was kind of the the start of it. And over the years, it's just I've devoured anything from old time radio plays to modern radio plays to to movies to various uh, television adaptations. Enjoying it now all over again, because diving into these three movies has been the start of Carl and I taking a journey. We're going to be watching everything I have of Sherlock Holmes from the silent films to the uh, Robert Downey Jr. movies. Well, I guess technically the very last Sherlock Holmes film I have is uh, one called Mr. Holmes with Ian McClellan playing a uh, 93-year-old Sherlock Holmes who is beginning to suffer from senility, which is a hard movie to watch in many ways, but uh, he does a fantastic portrayal of Sherlock Holmes in that, a, a version of Sherlock at the end of his life. Uh, still being the master detective as, be- as best he can. That's how I, I got into it, um, and I've just always enjoyed it. I've got a whole bookshelf of various novels, uh, loosely adapted. You know, there's so many that are not officially sanctioned because Sherlock is, for the most part, in public domain. There's been some debates over the years from the uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle estate of what's public domain and what's not, but I believe that. If I read correctly, I think by 2023, the last few remaining stories that are still have like a loose copyright on them are going to fall into the public domain. And at that point, all of the classic adventures uh, will be public domain and we'll probably start to see a lot of various reprints out there, which do exist right now to some extent or another. But I think we'll start seeing them a lot more once they all officially go into the public domain. What about you? What, what's been your experience with Sherlock? Well, I have no memorable history of the movies. I know I must have seen some growing up. And at some point, it, I mean, Sherlock Holmes just became a common knowledge. I, I don't know what it's called when something's just sort of woven into your pop culture experience. I can't pinpoint beginning. I, I have a couple of memories. I have a memory of a, a Hound of Baskerville's novel that I had. Uh, I must have read it a few times. That's I remember it distinctly. And I think that's probably because even back then I had more leanings towards horror. And that's the one that I, I believe people generally point out as having the being most closely tied to horror. I remember a DC Comics Sherlock Holmes number one from the 70s. I don't know if that was the only issue published. I kind of think it was. Uh, was that part of the DC implosion maybe that? Okay. It was. Yep, it was. Yeah, so I remember that distinctly. I still have that. Um, I'm familiar with a lot of the stories, but I don't really know how I am. 
that's all childhood. I have no adult really association with it. Maybe a, a desire, you know, to get more involved in this might be a, a first step, maybe to read a little more or, um, you know, watch some more of these movies. But uh, I, I don't know. He's just ingrained in me somehow, but uh, for no specific reason. Uh, I am using in this episode a book that I had found called Homes of the Movies. It was published in... If I can do my Roman numerals right, I think 76. Very short book, very concise. It's by David Stewart Davies, but it had a foreword by Peter Cushing. I think that's probably why I purchased it. I'll have to throw in a few comments here and there uh, from this book that looks at each of the movies. That's kind of going to be my fallback because I don't have a lot of knowledge like you do of the character, of the stories, or of the movies, but I enjoy them. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of good books out there, and there's a lot of good movies that I could, if you, you know, come out of this and want to see a few more, I could certainly recommend them to you. Going into this, I, I'd say if you enjoyed what you saw in The House of Fear, then you should watch the rest of the Basil Rathbone films because, first off, they're universal and there's a, a feel. And those movies just have a, a universal monsters feel to them. They're all enjoyable. Basil Rathbone's portrayal of Sherlock is not a faithful adaptation of how Sherlock is portrayed in the novels and short stories, but he's probably the most memorable version for a lot of people because that's that was their first exposure, and I enjoy the heck out of him. So I'd, I'd recommend that entire series. I mean, there's some that are stronger than others, but really, I don't think that there's a, a, a bad one in the entire series. Um, in fact, my understanding is the series would have continued beyond when it did. It's just that Basil Rathbone got tired of doing the role. Rich, I just had a memory that came up and I've, I've been searching as you were speaking. I also had a magazine growing up in the mid seventies called the history of Sherlock Holmes in stage films, TV and radio since 1899. I'm looking at it online. Now it does have Basil Rathbone uh, front in uh, sort of a sepia tone color behind him is Dr. Watson and then a woman. And it must be from one of the spider woman movies. Cause the word spider is above her head. This just came back to me with a, another memory that probably how I got sucked in at that time was probably the Peter Cushing connection, because even then I, I loved Hammer Films and was interested in that. So the Hound of the Baskervilles connection with Peter Cushing probably brought me into just Sherlock Holmes in general. But I do have this really cool magazine that I just remembered. I've got the same magazine, actually. Uh, it's kind of funny that you mentioned that. Yeah, I, there's definitely you know, good adaptations and bad. And there's, there's ones that I could, you know, if you say, Hey, what about this? I could tell you, Nope, steer clear of that because there's some stinkers out there, but there are some really good ones. And, uh, you know, there's some interesting, a lot of actors have portrayed Sherlock Holmes. I mean, from, uh, I think Christopher Plummer has done a fantastic job. I think Franklin Jella did a, an amazing job. Then, you know, on the other end, you've, you've got some that are, that aren't, quite as good. So, uh, you know, I think from one extreme to the other, you, you've got uh, a lot of a lot of good stuff that you can dive into. If you enjoy Sherlock Holmes, there is never going to be a, a, a lack of, of books to read or movies to watch. 
as much as I, I have in my collection, I have only a fraction of what's really out there. There's some really good books out there that I don't think they have to be officially sanctioned by the estate, again, because the character is public domain. There's a lot of, of uh, interesting stories in what Sherlock Holmes goes up against, you know, horror characters, you know, he going up against not only Jack the Ripper, but I think there's times where he's gone up against vampires and he's gone up against Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. So, you know, if you're wanting to stick, stick in that horror vein, there's definitely stuff out there for you to, to read and, and to watch that would definitely still be considered horror because Jack the Ripper is a theme that pops up in more than one film. In fact, when we get to our, our final film, I, I want to talk a little bit about Murder by Decree, which is another movie that, quite frankly, I think we probably should have done that one in retrospect because I think that's a better version of Sherlock's battle with Jack the Ripper. But nonetheless, I, yeah, so it's interesting to hear. I mean, you're kind of coming in without as much background as I do. So I, I kind of hope maybe by the time we get to the end of this episode, maybe this has opened up some new doors for you, interesting things that you'd like to see more of Sherlock. Absolutely. And I do have questions for you because I do know you're familiar, more familiar than I am. And so along the way, I will be asking you some questions, not trick questions to put you on the spot, but legitimate questions. <laughs> Sounds fun. I will answer them to the best of my ability. So do you have a, like a general history you want to give, or are we going to dive right into the movie? Yeah, let, let's talk a little bit about the background. So uh, because with, you know, the movies exist because of the original short stories and novels that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle wrote. Now he was born in 1859. The first Sherlock story appeared in 1887. He wrote a total of 56 short stories and four novels. The first was a novel, and it was A Study in Scarlet in 1887, and it appeared in Beaton's Christmas Annual. But most of the stories would appear in the Strand magazine. It helped. I mean, the Strand was already popular, but it is what makes it still remembered today. And I think, I believe the Strand is actually still publishing or at least has published in recent years. Believe it or not, it has continued publication. I'm sure it's vastly different than it was back in the late 1800s, but it, it is still in, in some form or another still out there. I should say with a study in Scarlet, uh, you know, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was only 27 when he wrote that, and he wrote it in, in uh, three weeks. And that opened the door for all of the other uh, stories and novels the 56 short stories are collected in, in a total of five books. The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes in 1892, The Memoirs of Sherlock Holmes in 1894, The Return of Sherlock Holmes in 1905. And then there was uh, kind of a gap because he did, he killed off Sherlock at one point and then kind of by popular demand, <laughs> Sherlock came back. And so um, the other two, short story collections came many years later. Uh, his last bow in 1917 and the case book of Sherlock Holmes in 1927. That was published just three years before his death in 1930 at the age of 71. The four novels are A Study in Scarlet, The Sign of the Four, The Hound of the Baskervilles, which was published 1901-1902 as kind of a, a series in uh, the Strand Magazine, and then uh, The Valley of Fear. Sherlock was killed off in 1893 in a story called The Final Problem, 
in which it was Sherlock's kind of climactic battle with Professor Moriarty. The Hound of the Baskervilles was actually published in 1901, but it was set at a time before Sherlock's death. So this wasn't the return of Sherlock. It was just, here's a story of Sherlock that hadn't been told before. But it was so popular that people wanted Sherlock to come back. And so two years later, rather reluctantly, Conan Doyle decided to bring Sherlock back in The Adventure of the Empty House in 1903. And then he continued to do uh, short stories until the very last, which was 1927's The Adventure of, I think it's pronounced uh, Shoscombe Place. It's been a long time since I've seen an adaptation of that. But in any case, uh, that was the, the last official adaptation. He was also heavily involved in the very popular stage play called, quite simply, Sherlock Holmes. Uh, in 1899, he co-wrote it with William Gillette, who went on to star in the play. Uh, William Gillette played in various revivals right up until 1932, with, I think, over 1,300 performances. Gillette was 79 when he last played the, the role in 1932, which was just five years before his death in 1937 at the age of 83. Uh, William Gillette not only played it on stage, but he also played it on film in uh, 1916 for SNA Films, which is essentially a filmed adaptation of the stage play. So watching that silent film, which does exist, it's been released uh, on Blu-ray by Flickr Alley, you get kind of a, a, an idea of what his stage version looked like. So uh, that film was actually lost for many, many years and it was just recently recovered and then immediately went into a restoration and was very quickly put out on Blu-ray. But for many years, it was lost. Frank Langella played the role of Sherlock in 1981 stage adaptation that was actually filmed for HBO back when HBO had used to film stage plays. And so I think you can find that on YouTube. And I remember watching the heck out of that when it was on HBO back in the day. And that actually features a uh, young boy character who was played by a 12-year-old Christian Slater, hmm. uh, one of his earliest roles. What was that called, Rich? Uh, it's, it's, it's called simply Sherlock Holmes. Oh, okay. So, yeah, you look for Sherlock Holmes, 1981, Franklin Jella, and uh, it is, it's a really good film stage adaptation. You remember, did, you remember when HBO used to do that? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that was one that I, I remember watching and then for so many years kept trying to find a copy because it's never been released on home media before. So the copy that's on YouTube is, is you know, something that was recorded off HBO back in the day. And that's, to the best of my knowledge, is the only way you're going to find it is going to be from original off-air recordings. All of the Sherlock Holmes stories are set in, uh, in the Victorian or Edwardian eras between 1880 and 1914. There's one that isn't, and I'm trying to remember which one that is, but I didn't write that down. But it's like, I think it's set forward uh, a little bit, but again, not by much. And most of the stories are from kind of, they're narrated from Dr. Watson's point of view. Sherlock is, of course, the great detective, and Dr. John H. Watson is his sidekick, if you were. He's the one that always writes the stories and then publishes them in the Strand and gives them all titles. And, 
and, you know, embellishes and that often comes into play in some of the film adaptations. They will talk about Dr. Watson, you know, writing the stories to be published in the Strand magazine and Sherlock always kind of making fun of it a little bit. I think it's safe to say that as far as literary characters go, Sherlock Holmes is, I think, the most prolific on film and television. I mean, you've got the classic monsters. There's so many different versions of the Frankenstein monster or Dracula, but really there's more Sherlock Holmes. I mean, there's only so many versions of Dracula out there, but Sherlock Holmes, because he had so many stories and there's so many other just, you know, uh, original stories out there that, that Sherlock is by far the most prolific. And, you know, Sherlock's been seen in comic strips, comic books, novels, board games, video games, radio adaptations and the films i mean they they were making films as far back as 1900 so the first sherlock holmes film came out just 13 years after the very first story so i'm not going to go into detail about all the different film versions out there that would you know turn this into like a 20-hour podcast but just briefly some of the most noted ones before Basil Rathbone, there was um, Sherlock Holmes Baffled, which was that very first one in 1900. Ellie Norwood is an actor who starred in 47 two-reelers in England between 1921 and 1923. And some of them do exist. There's a lot of them that don't. It's hard to really tell a mystery in, in 20 minutes' time. And some of the versions that are, are still exist, I think, are even shorter than that. But, it, it, you know, it's it's an early version uh, with the limitations that they had to time. It's, it's their curiosities. They're not great, in my opinion, but they're fun to watch. As I mentioned, there's the uh, William Gillette's version of Sherlock Holmes in 1916. There was the John Barrymore version in 1922, which was an adaptation of that Sherlock Holmes stage play. That was the first big budget Sherlock Holmes adaptation with a well-known actor in the lead role. There was uh, Arthur Wantner did a series of five films in the UK just before Basil Rathbone kicked off his series in 1939. Of course, there been so many actors in the years kind of during and after the films that we're going to talk about this week. I mean, there's, you know, Disney got into it with a great mouse detective You've got, I mentioned uh, Ian McKellen. There was uh, Robert Downey Jr. Jeremy Brett did a Sherlock Holmes television series that was aired here in the States on PBS Mystery in the 80s on into the early 90s. His adaptation is, is considered the most faithful because the way he portrays the character and just the, the way that you know everyone's image of Sherlock Holmes is the, the deerstalker hat. And in fact, that's nothing that was worn in, in the original stories. So the Jeremy Brett version, if you see any of those series of, of uh, stories, and he did a few movies along the way, those are amazing, uh, highly recommended. Uh, and of course, you know, putting Sherlock in a contemporary setting, you've got shows like Elementary and of course Sherlock with Benedict Cumberbatch, which introduced a whole new generation to Sherlock. And I didn't think I would like Sherlock, when it came out because it was set in modern times, but Benedict Cumberbatch really did an amazing job of his version of Sherlock in a modern setting. And it, and I think 
sometimes a little too manic, you know, but it was enjoyable. Just straight a little bit from the original source material, but still a lot of fun. Yes, we have Doctor Who and Star Trek connections. Tom Baker, who played the fourth Doctor, did kind of a homage to, to Sherlock in one of his stories called The Talons of Wang Chiang. And then in 1982, he played Sherlock in a four-part television miniseries adaptation of Hound of the Baskervilles. And William Shatner. Did you know that William Shatner was in a Sherlock Holmes story? I did not. Now, he does not play Sherlock, thank God. He did play George Stapleton in a 1972 television adaptation of Hound of the Baskervilles with Stuart Granger. This is post-Star Trek TV series, pre-Star Trek movie, bad toupee-wearing William (laughs) Shatner from the early 70s. Yeah, in all of its glory. So, yeah, loose connections there, but nonetheless, I thought that would be fun. 1939, Basil Rathbone decides to take on the role of Sherlock Holmes. Universal kicks off what they originally thought was going to be a longer series. Uh, no, I'm, I'm sorry, let me get backtrack. 20th Century Fox did the first two films, and they kicked off what they thought was going to be a longer series. They did two movies in 1939, The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes and The Hound of the Baskervilles, and Sherlock is set in, you know, uh, the proper time period, the late 1800s. And they are rather big budget adaptations. Nigel Bruce played Dr. Watson. Really f- great films. But because there was some contractual obligations and difficulties with the uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle estate, the looming World War II on the horizon. They just they they stopped after those first two films. And Universal picked it up in 1942 and went ahead and, and did another 12 films in the series. They made the, the the big difference of taking Sherlock and putting him in contemporary times, which was and still is kind of controversial. But I will say that aside from the first few films in the series where you've got Sherlock getting involved in the war effort and battling Nazis, that once you get past those, it's actually hard to tell for the most part that that you're watching a film in, in contemporary settings because modern technology wasn't really influenced that much. In fact, as we watched The House of Fear, I mean, aside from... I think there's a phone being used at one point, maybe. There's not a lot that would make you think this is a contemporary film. I think there's like some scenes in a car, but most of it could easily be in the late 1800s. And I think that's why the Universal series worked so well. And even though they put it forward, once you get past the Nazi World War II storylines, most of the movies are just good old-fashioned murder mysteries and really could take place at any given time. And certainly today, I don't think you notice, I mean, they're not contemporary to us now. So no. uh, at the time, maybe that was a thing, but that's certainly not anything I even thought of watching this movie. No, and I think there's an argument that, you know, I've always thought, no, Sherlock can't be contemporary, but Benedict Cumberbatch's version proved me wrong. I, I Have you seen that series? I have not, but I love Elementary. And so, I mean, very much in the same vein, Carla loves Elementary. I never have watched that. 
but I loved Sherlock and she, uh, with Benedict Cumberbatch, which she loves as well. And it works. I mean, it, it, it totally works. And it works because of the actor playing Sherlock. I mean, Benedict Cumberbatch is amazing. Uh, and, uh, oh, the actor uh, who plays Watson in, in, in that series. The uh, I can picture him. I can't think of his name. Yeah. Anyway, he's amazing as Watson. So that really it works. Uh, and so I, I, my preconceived notions of Sherlock cannot be in contemporary setting was proven wrong. And so going forward, you know, if, if there was another adaptation where Sherlock was in contemporary times, I'd be willing to give it an honest shot. I always prefer Sherlock in a proper setting, but I'm willing to accept Sherlock in contemporary as well. But Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce, I mean, they played a total of 14 films, but they were also playing it on radio while they were doing the films. They played the characters on radio from 1939 until 1946. And so not only were people seeing Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce on the screen, they were hearing them on radio as well. So really for, you know, a solid seven years, they were definitively Sherlock and Watson, which is why I think they just carried over into future generations because there's so much material of, of them out there. No one played the role more than, than Basil Rathbone aside from, you know, William Gillette's 1300 stage performances. No one has played the character more. And, and he was to a generation, he was the definitive Sherlock. That brings us to the house of fear, 1945, you know, the, the series had been going on for a while and was kind of past the halfway point, but I think was still, still knocking it out of the park. The, the, the movies are very brisk. They, they generally factor in around 70 minutes long, which I think is, is a perfect running time. I mean, a few of them run longer, but it, it keeps the movie moving along. There's not really a lot of, of uh, downtime. And so, as I've always said, sometimes, you know, movies make themselves longer than they need to be. 70 minutes is a good running time for a lot of monster movies and a lot of mysteries. You get much longer than that. You tend to get a little convoluted, especially with murder mysteries. And the Sherlock Holmes, Basil Rathbone, Universal Pictures, especially, and then the two by 20th Century Fox, I don't think ever get lost in that muck and mire of being too convoluted, which I think is important in, in enjoying a good mystery on, on the screen. You don't want to sit there and get lost in how many characters there are and what did this character do and that. It kind of becomes a Game of Thrones where as much as I love that series, don't ask me to tell you which character did what because there was so many characters and so much going on at times. It was really easy to get lost in some of the subplots and character developments you don't have that with the Universal Sherlock Holmes movies. There's just they're straightforward, fun mysteries made enjoyable by Basil Rathbone and, and Nigel Bruce. That said, there's a lot of Sherlock Holmes fans who won't, they don't like these as much because of the way Dr. Watson is portrayed. Your viewing of, of The House of Fear and then comparing it with the other two movies what did you think of how Dr. Watson was played by Nigel Bruce in this? How, how do you think, how did you think he was compared to the other films? Oh gosh, I 
thought he was fine. I don't know if that's really a comparison I picked up on between the three movies was Watson, except in the last one. I have a thing or two to say about that. I don't know. I didn't notice anything that bothered me or that I felt was wrong with it. Well, and maybe it's because we've seen all the other Rathbone films and, and realized that Nigel Bruce plays Watson more as a kind of a buffoonish sidekick, which is not really how he's portrayed in the novels and short stories or in most other adaptations. He's a, a detective who's always kind of aspiring to be more than, than, than he is because of course Sherlock is so great and, you know, Sherlock will sometimes, you know, in his own way, point out that, you know, Watson's wrong. That's kind of normal. But Watson, you know, in other films is portrayed as, as in some ways, just as much of an equal of Sherlock. Maybe not from a detective standpoint, but Watson can, can take care of himself. He would be the one, you know, he would get into the thick of things and, and he could... He might not be the you know able to see all of the clues before him, but he was never really portrayed as 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 a as a kind of as cartoonish as Nigel Bruce would sometimes play him in these movies. Not always, and I'm trying to remember in the House of Fear. He you know this might be one of the movies because I've seen all the others and they kind of blend as I'm sitting here trying to differentiate because in some of the movies he's he's less cartoonish than others. So maybe the house of fear is one of his movies in which he wasn't quite as much uh, of a sidekick to Sherlock. I do have a note that I think is along the lines of what you're saying. And it's at the very end of the movie. And uh, after they're explaining, you know, everything that happened, Watson explains a particular aspect of the mystery, how it was done. And when he's done, I, I made a note. He's so proud of himself that he, put that together or was able to provide that or whatever. And I made the note that Holmes just barely smiles. So that's probably indicative of what you're talking about, that just the way he was treated. I don't, before that, I didn't really pick up that he was a buffoon or anything, but I think that little ending there probably explains a lot about their relationship in these movies. Yeah. And, and, you know, Sherlock and, and, and Watson are, they're like brothers. They, they really are as, 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 as you read the stories and, and especially when, you know, you see the same actors, but playing the characters in a series of movies like Rathbone and Bruce, or like with Jeremy Brett and his long running series in the eighties and early nineties, there's definitely a, a, a bond and a, and a camaraderie between the two and, and, and other versions, of course, Watson, deals helps uh, Basil Rathbone with his uh, drug addiction, which I believe it's in one of the Rathbone films. There's even a, a reference, I think, to the needle, which, you know, <laughs> just like kind of throws you a little bit, you know, and and because that was not hinted at at all in in the, uh, the Universal films. That would have been too controversial for the day to just blankly put that out there but no he I mean he had yeah and that's how he would deal with the downtime is that he would have this addiction that was picked up in the 70s book and, and movie the seven percent solution which was talking about a cocaine solution Sherlock kind of going down he, he he's in this period of time where there's not a lot of mysteries for him to solve and he's too idle and the drug addiction overtakes him for a period of time 
It's an excellent film, not your usual Sherlock Holmes story, but a really good, you know, kind of what happens when Sherlock isn't solving crime, you know, every day of the week, you know, and then it kind of just, he battles his mind almost in that film. It's a, it's a really good movie written by Nicholas Myers, who, uh, or Nicholas Myers also wrote Star Trek throughout the con and, and is well known for, um, you know, time after time. Uh, yes, yes, that movie as well. So, yeah, I mean, so that recommendation, 7% Solution, find that movie uh, or the book. Either one is is amazing. You, so you've got Basil Rathbun and Nigel Bruce, and, and another kind of constant in all these films is the fact that, you know, you've got the character of Mrs. Hudson, who is played by actress Mary Gordon. And she's not in this movie, but she was in 10 of the 14 films. And rarely even got a credit, but she was always Mrs. Hudson is is the the housekeeper who was always there, you know, taking care of of Sherlock and and uh, Doctor Watson, uh, and and virtually every adaptation you're going to see Mrs. Hudson at one point or another, and she pops up like I said in ten of the fourteen films, and then of course Inspector Lestrade, who is with Scotland Yard and is always two steps behind Sherlock, but then always ends up trying to take the credit for solving the crime. He's played by actor Dennis uh, Howie, I think is how it's pronounced. He played Lestrade a total of six times in these films. And he's also got some horror cred. He was in Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, She-Wolf of London. Tarzan fans will know him from Tarzan and the Leopard Women. His version in this is pretty much how he's he's generally played as is kind of like always just again kind of a step or two behind sherlock he admires sherlock he's also envious of sherlock and if he gets the chance he'll take the credit for for the for solving the crime which always infuriates watson and sherlock really could care less he doesn't need the accolades he just wants to be able to solve the crimes and if somebody else takes the credit go for it watson hates that but yeah uh, we, we definitely get that throughout the Rathbone, Rathbone series. So but I guess before we dive into some of the other stuff I have on it, let's talk about the House of Fear. What were you know, your thoughts about the story? And, and did you get that old Dark House feel that I kind of feel when I watch this movie, just kind of the way it's set up? I absolutely did. And that's one of the notes I, I made. And in fact, I'll, I'll refer to a quote now uh, from this book. Uh, they're talking about, they call this the neatest and most effective of the Universal Holmes mysteries. Throughout, the special effects department was kept busy with providing howling winds, thunder and lightning, which added to the dimly lit interiors, give the film a suitably mysterious and sinister mood. So that definitely lends to uh, Old Dark House. Uh, definitely got that vibe. Uh, and some of the uh, tropes, you know, muddy footprints and shoes found in the closet, broken glass from inside the house, all of those types of things reminded me very much of Old Dark House. Which is, I think, why I chose this movie. I was like, I remembered it enough to know that, yeah, it's, it's like it, it had that kind of horror feel. You've got, you know, the murders taking place and, and who's committing the murders and stuff. What did you think about Basil Rathbone and, and Nigel Bruce uh, and, and their portrayal of, of Sherlock and Watson? I think, I mean, in my limited exposure, I think they're the definitive pair. Uh, I I enjoyed them most of the three movies. The other thing just overall, like looking at the three, you think of your uh, 
lines, you know, like elementary, my dear Watson and things like that, that just you think go hand in hand with Sherlock Holmes. I did notice in this early film, there's not a lot of those. So what I'm wondering is just over time, as those are added to the movies and to the stories, do they just sort of accumulate where when you get to the later movies, they're more, uh, they have become tropes or, you know, just things that you associate with Holmes? Because I didn't see a lot of those in this movie. Yeah, I mean, the like the Deerstalker hat, there's something that is not in the original stories. That was... What, when did that come in? You mentioned that earlier. What Was it one of these movies? Yeah, I want to say it was the Basil Rathbone films. I, I haven't revisited the Arthur Wantner series, which was in the British 1930s. Uh, I mean, literally, I think the last film was in 37. So it was like two years before Rathbone took over. Well, I mean, didn't take over, but, you know, began his series. But I don't believe that that Arthur Wantner wore the, the Deerstalker hat. I mean, usually he would, if he wore a hat, it would, you know, be a hat of the day that you would find gentlemen wearing in, in uh, you know, late 1800s, you know, England. Deerstalker hat would be something that you would wear out in the countryside. But over the years, that's just become that vision and stuff. And it actually isn't a, isn't a faithful adaptation, but it's become the accepted version. And the elementary, my dear Watson, I'm going to say this in hopes that I'm right, but I don't think that was ever in any of the original uh, stories either. I think that was something that came about in the in the Basil Rathbone films. It, it is featured in some of the other films and just, again, became so closely associated that everyone kind of thinks, well, that's what Sherlock says, which is another reason why I think the Basil Rathbone films for a generation of people, this was the definitive version of Sherlock, you know, and really... I don't think until we we had the Jeremy Brett series in the 80s, you know, which was, what, 40 years later, pretty much every version you see of Sherlock after that was inspired in one way or another by the Basil Rathbone series. It wasn't until that Jeremy Brett kind of broke that mold and said, we're going to go with a more faithful adaptation and go to the original source material that you really got to see Sherlock as he was originally portrayed. And some will say that, you know, Jeremy Brett is a little drier and admittedly his portrayal, it's amazing. But if you're looking for a Basil Rathbone, you know, kind of larger than life, which he is in his movies, you're not going to get that with Jeremy Brett. You might get that with some other actors, but they're, again, they're kind of doing a version that was given to them by Basil Rathbone but isn't necessarily the real Sherlock. That said, I enjoy the heck out of them. So I'm okay with them being, you know, a less, less than faithful adaptation because they're, I think they're so enjoyable. The other comment I wanted to make is that I think in all of, well, in any Sherlock Holmes movies, I think you've really got to credit the screenwriter. The, the dialogue is what I get the most kick out of. But it's just not words. I mean, the, the screenwriter's got to provide those, and there's some great quotes in this movie. But then it, it's the delivery. And I think the combination of the actor playing with the delivery of these great quotes, to me, is what makes a, a better Sherlock Holmes movie than uh, some other movie. And I think probably with Basil Rathbone playing it so many times, it probably becomes more comfortable for him, more natural and this movie, I guess you said, sort of in the middle of the series, 
he's probably hit his stride and it's just comfortable and seems natural and sort of, you know, goes together like chocolate and peanut butter. It, yeah, really. Yeah, exactly. But interestingly enough, I think he was probably even by this point, he was becoming bored with the role. Um, he mm. was an actor that wanted to be challenged. And I found an interesting quote that said, first picture was, as it were, a negative from which I merely continued to produce endless positives of the same photograph. And that really is a, a very descriptive is that, you know, once he got past that first portrayal, for him, as an actor, he was just continuing on, which I think is is a plus because the film series, I mean, when you watch some films and when you have different directors coming in and different actors, I mean, even like with the Harry Potter films, you know, you've got eight films in that series. If you watch the first two films, they had, you know, the, I can't remember the directors of each, but there was a director who handled, I think, the first two films. And then the, a different director came in the third film, same cast, but all of a sudden they changed some things around. I mean, geographically, they're, you know, Hagrid's house is in a different location and stuff. And these little things that you kind of notice as you're watching a series or like the character of Dumbledore played by two different actors and Dumbledore is, is, is different. You know, d- different actors bring something different to the table with the Rathbone series, it's important to note that Roy William Neal directed this film. He directed the last 11 films. And so he directed all but the first film for Universal. And that's why there's just a cohesiveness in the in the Rathbone series is because you had the same vision, right? The same actors, you had the same director. Everything just kind of flowed from one movie. It's almost like you're watching a TV series. It's just it, it connects from one film to the other rather seamlessly, really. And I think that's that helps the series as well, helps it stand out maybe above some others because there was just a, a flow. And once they got that flow going, they just they didn't stop. And um, I mean, it would have continued beyond 1946. I think they had three more years on the, the license for it at that point. But Rathbone had grown tired of the film, the, the role in the films. And not only did he leave doing the, uh, the movies, he also left the radio series. Well, Nigel Bruce, you know, was certainly up and wanted to continue. And so the radio series continued for another year with an actor by the name of Tom Conway taking over, in which I think he sounds very similar to Basil Rathbone, different, but similar at times. It was kind of seamless on the radio. I mean, it, it was, the format was the same. The radio did a, a thing where the sponsor, which was usually, uh, I think it was Petri Wines, the sponsor would come in and, and meet Dr. Watson by the fireplace, and they would open up a, a glass of whatever you know wine they were pushing that week, and then Dr. Watson would say, well, this reminds me of the tale, you know, that Sherlock and I battled, you know, the Hound of the Baskervilles and over a glass of wine and would proceed to tell the story. And then at the end of it, the flashback is over essentially. And now Watson is by the fire, you know, drinking another glass of, of sherry. Um, <laughs> it worked for that series. It makes it a lot of fun. They considered Tom Conway to, to continue the role on film, but then decided, you know, that, you know, Basil Rathbone, at least on film was, going to be too hard to replace 
Tom Conway could do it on the radio, but I don't think Tom Conway would have been good. He was American actor and that seemed almost too American. He could pull it off on radio. I don't think he would have been able to pull it off on screen. And so thankfully they didn't go down that path. They just, when it ended, uh, they, they ended it. They didn't try to linger it on longer than they should have. So several comments in what you just said. First of all, there was a wine called Petri that, or Petri that just doesn't go together with me. I think of (laughs) Petri dish and wine. That's bad marketing. If you ask me. Okay. So boredom from the actor, I think a certain amount of that would uh, benefit the role. Uh, And I don't mean to imply that Sherlock Holmes is bored, but he obviously knows things other people don't and gets, whatever satisfaction he gets out of telling them how obvious things were. So I think, I think the boredom could work in his favor. Now I have not seen the later films, so I don't know if it becomes noticeable to the viewer, but I certainly didn't notice it in this one. And and again, I think that could be an asset. Uh, The other thing you mentioned, the director being the same for all of them, that yes, it does provide all the things that you say. However, I think it also limits new, fresh ideas or viewpoints being brought in that could possibly have extended the series uh, had the actors not become bored with it. So it's a double-edged sword, good thing, bad thing. You've got the consistency, but you also don't have uh, a freshness or a new perspective brought in. That is a good point. Uh, If they would have had a different director come in and maybe stirred things up just a little bit, that might've been enough to inspire Basil Rathbone to maybe do something a little different with his performance. Yeah, it, it might have continued the series on. That's a really good point. So what else you got to tell us about it? Just a few little tidbits. So the cast, we have the character of Alistair is played by Aubrey Mather. A few other monster-related roles. He played an inspector in Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, 1941. He was also in a movie called The Undying Monster. Paul Cavanaugh played the character of Simon Merivale, who uh, I'm sure, you know, people will recognize him. He he played in 163 film and TV credits. Tarzan pops up as I was doing a lot of history on these. Tarzan and his mate. He was in that movie in 1934. Monster movie related or Sherlock Holmes related. He was also in two other Basil Rathbone films in different roles, The Scarlet Claw and The Woman in Green. He was also in this strange case of Dr. R.X. with Lionel Atwill, kind of a throwback a couple months ago. Uh, he was in Bride of the Gorilla, The Strange Door with Boris Karloff. He was in The House of Wax with Vincent Price and in The Man Who Turned Stone. So familiar face. If you uh, recognize the character of Simon Maryville, you might have uh, said, well, I wonder what he was in. Well, that's, he was uh, kind of a familiar face. A little tidbit about a couple of things in the movie that might have gone unnoticed. This was the only film in the series in which Holmes actually refers to Dr. Watson as Dr. John H. Watson. Usually it was Watson. Uh, this is the only time that he really gave him credit for Dr. John Watson. And it happens at the very end of the movie. There was a shot in I'm trying to think of which scene it was here. Uh, it was towards the end of the film. I think it was. It may have. It may have been in the in the study, but there is a uh, a cane that uh, has a wolf's head, and it's still a debate. Many people believe that it was the wolf's head cane from the Wolfman, 
as a, just a random prop sitting sitting up against a wall. Others will say, well, nope, I zoomed in and it definitely looks different. I would venture to say it probably is the same, considering that both movies were made by Universal and the original at that point in time would have been sitting around a uh, the prop house, the Universal prop house. And it was probably just picked up and thrown in that in that scene. And if you watch the, the rest of the Sherlock Holmes films of Basil Rathbone, you might recognize the house because it was actually featured in a previous movie, Sherlock Holmes and the Voice of Terror in 1942. So kind of a, a familiar, familiar house. And uh, last but not least, this was released on a double bill. Interesting pairing. It was uh, paired up alongside The Mummy's Curse with Lon Chaney Jr., and that's what I have on the House of Fear. I would certainly recommend it. If you're going to dive into the Basil Rathbone films, you know, I would just start at the beginning and work your way through, but you, they don't necessarily have to be viewed that way. I think uh, the entire series is fun. I know that the entire series is now available on one set uh, on Blu-ray. Uh, I watched it on a DVD set that came out a few years ago, and I've been told that the Blu-ray is even cleaned up even better. Uh, there was some print problems over the years, but uh, it looks great and they're fun and I would highly recommend it. I would too. I enjoyed it. Okay, so we're going to leap ahead by about 14 years. Universal, of course, and the Universal Monster Films were able to pull off, I think, a really good Sherlock Holmes series. So the question is, can the Hammer Horror Film Studio... Can they do justice to Sherlock as we take a look at The Hound of the Baskervilles from 1959? Know then the legend of The Hound of the Baskervilles. Take heed and beware the more in those dark hours when evil is exalted else you will surely meet the Hound of Hell, the Hound of the Baskervilles. Which way? For heaven's sake, which way? The greatest story ever written by one of the world's greatest storytellers, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's classic masterpiece of mystery, suspense, and horror, The Hound of the Baskervilles. Some revolting sacrificial rite has been performed. Depths a human being can sink to. What human being could have done this? That is precisely what I intend to find out. But how can you be so certain that somebody took one of the bishop's spiders and deliberately placed it in Sir Henry's room? That it wasn't in the luggage he brought from South Africa? Elementary, my dear Watson. There are no tarantulas in South Africa. What do you want me to do? Identify anything I may find. Strange things are to be found on the moor. Like this, for instance. Why? You thought it was going to be easy, didn't you? Didn't you? You won't be the first of your family who thought that. And you won't be the first to die because of it.
a Sherlock Holmes aficionado, plays the detective in the Hammer Films version of the classic tale by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Holmes and Watson investigate a mystery surrounding Sir Henry Baskerville, but he inherits the family estate and the family curse. Richard, as you mentioned, this was uh, the Hammer House of Horror taking a perspective on the Hound of Baskervilles that I assume everyone would believe like they did with the classic Universal Monsters, this would be in glorious color and it would perhaps be more shocking and perhaps a little more bloody. So yes and no, sort of in my opinion, I think it's definitely a a different take on the story, but I'm curious with you and your more better knowledge of the earlier films, how, how did this compare just in attitude, I guess, or scope or vision than the earlier movies? You know, having seen several other versions of The Hound of the Baskervilles just recently, definitely, like I said, the a Dracula feel to it because the film's characters aren't necessarily swapped out, but there's different aspects in all the different versions. And this version very much does feel like Hammer. It is, for example... The opening sequence where we have Sir Hugo chasing the young woman and encountering the the hound and he kills the woman right at the beginning. I mean, he he stabs her. It's, it's much more graphic. He's attacking her. That is usually not how that's played out in other adaptations. She typically dies of fright by seeing the beast and, and Sir Hugo never lays a hand on her uh, in most of the other versions. From what I can remember, you know, it's been a few years since I've seen, and there's some that I have, have never seen. You definitely get a little bit more of a, a hammer feel to this. I've always thought, I remember watching this movie, and I don't think I mentioned this earlier, but I, now that I'm thinking about it, I watched this movie on uh, a Saturday morning on Superstation TBS in the early 80s when they used to do they would play a lot of Hammer movies, I remember, on, on early Saturday mornings. And when they weren't playing wrestling and they weren't playing Ultraman, it seemed like they were playing movies. And I remember that's that was my first time watching Hound of the Baskervilles. The opening sequence where you have Sir Hugo and his men and they're making fun of the girl. And I always, it throws me into, uh, what is it, Curse of the Werewolf with uh, mm, mm-hmm. Reed, you know, that opening sequence where the, the girl is attacked and that one, I always kind of, to me, there was always kind of a similarity with how it was portrayed. And it is, it's, it, it's in this film, it's a little more, a little more graphic, a little more physical than it's usually portrayed in other versions. So in that regards, I definitely hammer is, is playing into it. So are you saying, Richard, that none of the other movies have dialogue like bitch got away, hounds let loose the pack. Well, not that I can recall. Like I said, I haven't seen every version because, like I said, there's a lot of versions of this of this tale out there, and I have some, you know, that I haven't seen for a long time. So as we're working our way through, it might be something fun months down the line. I might, I might, uh, come, we might come back on on the show, and I may say, hey, here's here's a random thought about Sherlock Holmes as I rewatch or see some of these other versions. But no, no, that that's where I said this is definitely got hammer's touch to it. And I think, I think that that's, that's a wonderful thing. I, I, I absolutely love what they did with, with the tale. And I think 
you know, there's a variety of reasons why this works. Two really good reasons are obviously Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. Yeah, Cushing and Lee, I mean, that's that's Hammer right there. That's what we love about it. Just Cushing, though, how do you uh, compare him as Sherlock Holmes uh, to, I guess for now, just Basil Rathbone, since that's the only one we've talked about in detail. How do you like his performance as Sherlock Holmes compared? I love Peter Cushing's performance as Sherlock Holmes. I think he was born to play the role. I, and I love Basil Rathbone, too. Uh Gosh, if you're asking me to to choose one or the other, that would be tough. That would definitely be tough. I'm in the midst of of watching his 1968 TV series for the very first time. And we're only two episodes in. And those first two episodes are an adaptation of The Hound of the Baskervilles. He played it for for one season, essentially. And I want to say half of the episodes are missing. In great Doctor Who BBC fashion, they deleted some of the, you know, many other shows besides Doctor Who, and this series was one of them as well. So only about half of his stories still exist. And obviously, we're working with a lesser budget. So it definitely kind of feels a little bit like like Doctor Who from that era with a little more money. The portrayal is just as good in that series as, as we get in this movie. And, you know, Peter Cushing would do it again you know, near the end of his life, he came back and played an older Sherlock in uh, The Masks of Death in 1984, uh, which I'm going to assume, have you ever seen that? I know with Peter Cushing, I thought you, maybe you have, but... I have not. That's fun. I mean, that, that's, that's, that's fun. You know, it's it's always hard to see your favorite actors grow older, and so sometimes their their later films might be a little bit of a struggle. I remember Peter Cushing looked very skinny in that film, but... It's still Peter Cushing. And so aside from some of the, oh, Peter's looking older, he's looking, you know, skinnier, he still knocks it out of the park with his portrayal of Sherlock. I don't know that I could say that Peter's my favorite Sherlock, and I don't know that I can say he's better than Basil Rathbone, but he definitely stands on his own, and he is definitely one of my favorites. I, I can I, I can definitely say that. Okay, that answers my question. I mean, at least you're not saying, oh, no, he was miscast and he's not a good Sherlock Holmes, so that's fine. What's interesting to me about this, I I made a note and then my resource material here backs me up. I'm going to quote from the book. The great problem facing any writer with the task of transferring this story to the screen is that Holmes is absent from the action for at least half the book, reappearing, reappearing, as it were, to tie up the loose ends. This may be acceptable for a book, but not for a film, whose selling power to some extent depends on the name above the credits. The actor playing Holmes must be well-featured throughout the film to justify his billing. I wonder, in other versions, how did they treat that? I, I, I don't know if in this movie he's in the movie more than he is in other versions of the story. I did know I made a note that he was gone for a large part of it. So can you speak to this aspect at all? Um, other adaptations I've seen, they're generally, yeah, it's, it's done the same way. I mean, you really can't put Sherlock in the story without changing the story because the whole gist of it is that he intentionally makes himself absent so he can watch things from afar and see how things play out, which I think it's important if you go back to when that story originally came out, Sherlock was dead. You know, Arthur Conan Doyle had, had killed him off. And so this was, I think Sherlock 
playing a lesser role was intentional because he had killed off his character, but yet he wanted to do this story. And Sherlock is kind of a secondary character. I mean, if you, you want to talk about screen time, Watson does more in this movie than Sherlock does, which is not the case in any other story. Going back to the source material, that had to be intentional because Sherlock was technically dead. You know, this was taking place before his death, but there was reason why Sir Arthur Conan Doyle didn't put Sherlock in the forefront. Nonetheless, when he did, people, you know, did the put it out the way it was. People said, oh, yes, we want more Sherlock. And then, of course, he started writing, again, more traditional Sherlock stories with Sherlock, you know, being the main character. That probably falls into play. And it is interesting because this is the one story that's been adapted the most. And it is the one that features Sherlock the less, uh, the least. No, I've never seen a version where he plays a bigger part because you'd end up really having to rewrite it. I think. Yeah. And so what about Watson? This uh, book tells me that there can be little doubt that Andre Andre Morel's performance as Watson must be the definitive one played with great sincerity and without any of the petulant buffoonery of Nigel Bruce and his impersonators. Morel's Watson comes closest to the image of the character that Conan Doyle's writings create. Would you agree with that? I would, yeah. I mean, Andre Morel's really good as Watson. The uh, There was two different actors who played opposite Jeremy Brett in the 80s and 90s that were, to one degree or another, they were both really good. I would say Andre Morel was slightly better than their, than their performances. And it's unfortunate that we didn't get a chance to see more of this pairing of uh, Peter Cushing and Andre Morel. I know that there was supposed to be, I mean, this, this was the thought was this was going to start a a series of hammer Sherlock Holmes films. The audience at the time, they wanted, they wanted the monsters, right? They wanted the blood and guts and gore as it was that we were seeing in, you know, Dracula and Frankenstein and the mummy. And that's, that's, that's what they wanted. They wanted the more horrific side. And so the movie, you know, did well and it was well received, but because, you know, the, the audience really wanted more of the monsters, they generally, again, it, the movie did well, but not well enough, not as well as it should have. And so then the series was, was that was planned was then dropped. And, you know, Peter Cushing would return to the role in 68, but nothing to do with Hammer. Yeah, it seems like a missed opportunity, but yet I kind of like having it just as one example, you know, of Hammer's attempt at Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, I think that the, the the problem would have been is like, do they adapt stories and then the trying to put the Hammer touch to other stories might have resulted in maybe trying to infuse too much horror and less mystery. And so, yeah, I, that might have that might have hurt the other films if they would have kind of gone down down that path. It's too bad it's not modern times, and they had the Hammer shared film universe, and Sherlock Holmes could meet Dracula. And I, I wonder how they do <laughs> Sherlock Holmes meets Frankenstein. We'd have to have some tricky camera work, but that'd be pretty cool. I know that there's been written material about Sherlock Holmes meeting Dracula. I'm not sure anyone's ever done the Frankenstein monster. But I would say that yet because, you know, there's so many uh, adaptations out there 
to one degree or another. Well, I'm talking about Frankenstein the Doctor. Could you imagine Cushing versus Cushing uh, in in their those characters? That would be really yes, cool. That'd be that would be uh, yeah. Which which uh, version of, of uh, Frankenstein? You know, are we getting the more gentler kind, or are we getting the Frankenstein must be destroyed? Which was certainly a harsher portrayal. That would be that would be interesting to see that version go up against Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, I think it could work either way. I mean, it, it, a, a calmer, smarter, more contemplative Frankenstein against Sherlock Holmes and his wits, you know, might be more of a verbal sparring kind of slower movie and the, the other one would be more action-packed. Uh, I also want to say that my favorite Watson, if you're asking, is Lucy Liu. Well, to see... <laughs> I'm kidding, but I do have to say I met both Johnny Lee Miller and Lucy Liu at Comic-Con one year, and that woman is beautiful. She's Some people look better on screen, and you meet them, and, oh, they don't look as great. Lucy Liu looks so much prettier than she does uh, on television. Just I was and remained quite smitten with her, which has nothing to do with anything, but I'm sharing. <laughs> well, see... I'm actually more open now than I than I I was about stirring things up, you know, with with Sherlock Holmes. In my mind, Watson's a man, Sherlock is a man, and they're in England in the late 1800s, and that's always going to be the best way to do it. That said, I think there's there's room for other uh, versions because again, I, I I was very hesitant diving into Sherlock and was blown away by Sherlock. I, I'd love to see Benedict Cumberbatch come back. I don't know that we will, at least not right now. He's too, too, way too busy. Maybe he'll revisit that role years down the road and we'll see an older Sherlock. I think that'd be interesting. I could see him doing it because he loves playing Sherlock. He just doesn't have the time. With elementary, I, I was interested until I heard what Lucy Liu is, is Watson. No, thank you. But you know, once I got past, you know, Sherlock in a modern setting, I, I kind of thought, well, maybe it, they could pull it off. And then, of course, Carla was a big fan of that series and said that she loved it. And so I told her, I said, you know, at some point I'll give it a try. I'll sit down and watch it. I hear good things about it. Tr you know, there'll be the diehard Sherlock Holmes fans who are going to say no go, never going to happen. I'm going to be more open minded and say I think that there's always room for uh, you know a different version or a different uh, perspective because honestly you know we've had books that have been put out where Sherlock is battling vampires and and giant rats and and that was stuff that you know Arthur Conan Doyle never touched on yet they work and there's no reason why we can't kind of stir things up a little bit because it doesn't erase all the other stories that are out there. It just kind of gives an earth two perspective of what Watson was like. And uh, I'm, so I'm, I'm totally open to it. Uh, the last thing I'll point out from the book that uh, it says about the Hound of the Baskervilles is the biggest appointment in the film, disappointment in the film is the appearance of the Hound itself. Determined to inject as much horror into the story as possible, Hammer emphasized the horrific elements of the Hound so then when it finally appeared, it was a marked anti-climax. It goes on to talk about Terrence Fisher 
noticing that the dog was one of the kindest and loveliest dogs around and that they did have difficulty making it appear threatening. Uh, they did apparently use, uh, for some of the close-ups, an artificial head, and that may have been uh, apparent uh, a little bit. I'm not sure, but what did you think of the hound? The hound is always... Uh, it's always kind of problematic, right? I mean, it, it, and anytime you work with animals, right, it's like you can get... You want this this beast to be vicious, you know, but really all he wants is a belly rub and, and, and his ears scratched. And so how do you make this cute, cuddly dog look ferocious on camera without devouring the actors playing the characters? In modern day, we do get another version, which I'm sure we will at some point. They'll attempt a CGI dog, and it's going to mm. be even more horrible than what we got, you know, here. It's, it, I don't... I didn't, it didn't bother me that much. Yeah, there was, I know what scene they're talking about where it's a little rough. Uh, You know, I'm thinking other versions were worse in regards to, uh, you know, that I'm trying to remember other versions that I've seen. And sometimes, yeah, the the hound doesn't work as well. Even though it's in the title, the hound itself is seen very little in the story. It's the presence of the hound and, and the, the anticipation or whatever that that's the more interesting aspect of the story and the payoff sometimes isn't always there because of the limitations you have when dealing with an animal. But I didn't think it, I didn't throw me out too much in this movie. I didn't think for me, I, I mean, I enjoyed the movie and I I'm thinking now on all three and I don't know that it's the stories that are memorable for me. I mean, if I think, if I think of the three stories, I think I prefer house of fear, but Really what's memorable about each of these is the characters of Sherlock Holmes. You know, I think of Hound of Baskervilles, I think, oh, Peter Cushing. You know, I think he's the standout in this. Um, I don't know that I thought it was, that I enjoyed it any more uh, than the Basil Rathbone one that we watched. I think you can have an amazing story and the best mystery, but if you don't have good lead actors convincing in their, in their portrayal as Sherlock and, and Watson, especially Sherlock. Uh, I mean, you can have someone that maybe is a little lesser Watson, but you've got to have someone who's, you know, right on, on target for Sherlock. If you don't have that, then the best story is not going to save the movie. Um, Sherlock is, is a, in some ways it's a different character to portray, but then on others it's not depending on, because there's a lot of references that, you know, any actor could look at, can take, you know, different aspects from different portrayals. So I think that, you know, Sherlock is is difficult in some ways, but not in others. And you either nail it or you don't. And, and I know adaptations that if the Sherlock doesn't convince me, then I could care less about the story because I'm not, I'm not feeling, you know, Sherlock, which admittedly is is one of my problems with the next movie we're going to talk about in that John Neville's Sherlock Holmes to me is is upon revisiting that movie it's one of the weaker uh Sherlock Holmes I think on screen you got to have someone get in that lead role and Peter Cushing is amazing and so like I said earlier I don't know for me if he's more amazing than Basil Rathbone 
I think they they both bring something great to the table and they're both very memorable. I guess now that I think about it, I want to clarify my point. Like I believe comparing the mysteries of the two movies, I think I prefer the House of Fear mystery. I like the uh, you know, solution and what was really going on a little bit more than I liked um, The Hound of the Baskervilles. Now, refresh my memory, you may have said House of Fear was based, yes, it was based on an original uh, Arthur Conan Doyle story, right? Loosely, yeah. I mean, there, there was certainly some changes to the story um, as you get anytime you do adaptations, but I would agree with you. I actually liked the the story of The House of Fear better than The Baskervilles. I do enjoy The Baskerville story and you know, there's certainly plenty of adaptations out there of it, but I love to see Sherlock in his element, and I love to see him being a detective. We don't get that as much here. He has uh, a little bit at the beginning of the film, and then he just, as you mentioned earlier, he disappears for a large part of it. And by the time he pops up, uh, we're almost in the we're heading towards the climax of, of the movie. I'm, I'm really anxious to see the, the rest of these episodes from the 68 series, because I, I have a feeling that I'm going to grow to love Peter Cushing even more because I think he's going to be allowed to, in this series, be that detective that he isn't quite able to do in this story because he is not in the entire story. Does he play it pretty much the same or does he do anything notably different in the series? Again, I've only seen the first two, which is the Hound of the Baskervilles adaptation. So from what I've seen, I'm, I'm picking up a lot of the same vibe. I don't can't remember the name of the actor who's playing Watson. He's not as good as uh, Andre Morel. So there is that. But the series is well done. I wasn't sure what it was going to look like being 1968 because... 1968 Doctor Who is still a little rough around the edges. It was still being filmed in black and white. And it was a typical BBC production in that if it was a, you know, shot in the studio, then it was shot on videotape. But then if it was shot on location, they would do use film. That is what they do with this Sherlock Holmes series. It does add a little bit of cheapness to the, the studio set a little bit because it's shot on video. However, it is in color, and you can tell that it's it's it does have a, a bigger budget than Doctor Who did at the same time, simply by by what you see on the sets, getting a little more than what we got from Doctor Who at the time period. I'm anxious to see the rest of the series, but from what I've seen so far, uh, I like it. Well, you got any trivia or fun stuff about this? I do. Okay, so we talked a little bit about Andre Morel. Of course, everyone should know him. A lot of other, you know, Hammer films, Plague of the Zombies, Mummy Shroud, Camp on Blood Island. He was in Doctor Who. What a, I'm going to keep the Doctor <laughs> Who references coming. He played in The Massacre opposite the first Doctor, William Hartnell, in 1966. The character of Stapleton, played by Ewan Solon, actually has some Hammer film credits to his uh, name, Curse of the Werewolf, Terror of the Tongs. He was in Doctor Who twice himself opposite the first Doctor in The Savages, and opposite the fourth Doctor, Tom Baker, in Planet of Evil. Actress Marlo Landy played the uh, character of Cecile. Uh, she was in a, uh, not in a lot of, of uh, credits to her name, but she was in Pirates of Blood River, 
which is opposite Christopher Lee, one of Hammer's Pirates movies. Have you ever seen that? Yes, I have. I like those. They're, they're fun, I think, yeah. Of course, the music is done by James Bernard. Amazing. Did, of course, uh, at least 20-plus other Hammer films. He is certainly a big part of Hammer's success, I think. The screenplay was by Peter Bryan, who didn't have a lot of credits to his name, but certainly made his mark on monster films. He did a few other Hammer movies, Brides of Dracula, Plague of the Zombies, uh, as well as a few lesser films like The Blood Beast Terror and Trog. And, uh, of course, we mentioned Terrence Fisher, the director. No, you know, again, a master when it comes to Hammer films and so many credits to his name. So Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee, they a definite connection to Sherlock. We've been talking a little bit about other works that Peter Cushing did. He did a lot of research into his portrayal for this film. And again, as you mentioned, he's a Sherlock Holmes aficionado. He would even provide his own costume for the movie so that it would match some of the illustrations from the uh, Sherlock Holmes series in the, uh, the Strand magazine. He was uh, one of the parts in the movie he uses. Uh, there's a uh, jackknife that he has at one point, and, and it's one of those classic Peter Cushing moments where he's got something in his hands and stuff. That was actually definitely Peter Cushing suggested that that little sequence. He wanted it to because it for him it it pulled in uh, Sherlock's ability to become fixated on objects and stuff that he was investigating. Christopher Lee also had a strong connection with Sherlock. He played uh, the character of Sherlock Holmes in three films, uh, Sherlock Holmes and the Deadly Necklace in 1962. It was directed by Terrence Fisher, uh, not a Hammer production. And I believe the only version out there right now is a dubbed version that does not have Christopher Lee dubbing his own voice, which makes that a really rough film to watch because you, you're expecting Christopher Lee's voice and you're not getting it. But then he came back in the 90s and did two films, uh, Sherlock Holmes and The Leading Lady in 91 and The Incident at Victoria Falls in 92. Patrick McNee from The Avengers plays Watson in both of those. And then he also played uh, Sherlock's brother, Mycroft, in The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes in 1970. The scene with Christopher Lee's character, Sir Henry, where the spider is on mm -hmm. him, the fear that you see on his face is actually real. He had a uh, definite fear of spiders. And so he was legitimately not happy with that, see uh, with that scene. He was, he was uh, deathly afraid of spiders, which I did not know until reading that little tidbit. I find that hard to believe that, you know, Christopher Lee did all these other amazing things in his life. And then he's afraid of spiders. I think that's kind of funny. The uh, Baskerville Hall set may have looked familiar for those eagle eyes. It was actually uh, the same set used in Horror of Dracula uh, the previous year. Let's see. This was actually the first Sherlock Holmes film in color. Hmm. Yeah, The Hound of the Baskervilles certainly is a classic. And if you're a Hammer Horror fan, you're going you're gonna to want to watch this, obviously, even though it's not horror if you're a hammer fan like me you tend to, to dive into some of the other films like pirates of blood river you want to see the other things that hammer does and you won't be disappointed with this one and obviously if you enjoy what peter cushing does i, I suggest that you 
uh, seek out the the series that the, uh, was put out, I think, by A&E Video. I think it's out of print now, so you're going to have to to do some digging to find it out there. But uh, be careful which one you get. There's another uh, series that A&E Video put out. There was a Sherlock Holmes series done in 1965 with a uh, with a different actor. I think it's the same actor playing Watson, but a different actor playing Sherlock. I don't have that. The covers are very similar. So, and I think if you look in the description, I think it references Peter Cushing, but he's definitely not in this. That it's often called season one, season two. They were actually two different two different uh, series altogether. But just buyer beware. Make sure you're getting the right version out there. And I believe. This has been released on Blu-ray, has it not? Yes, I watched it on Blu-ray, and it was not what I thought it was. It was a company called Shock Entertainment, uh, and it was a, actually a DVD Blu-ray multi-format set. So I don't know where that came from, but I had it, and that's what I watched was a Blu-ray. For some reason, I thought Shout Factory put that out, huh? They may have. This may have been an... It sounds... Like it may have been an import. Yeah, those are always yeah, those are always tricky. So I'm looking up Amazon as we record because I, I want to make sure that we guide people to the to the right version. So Hound of the Baskervilles Blu-ray with Peter Cushing. Uh Twi was it Twilight Time? Oh yes, yes, yes. Yeah, they put that out. Okay. Good luck finding those. Those are pricey, forty dollars. And they tend to go out of print, and it looks like you're going to have to buy a used copy of it because it looks like it is out of print. Shop around. You can get that cheaper than $40. I think Twilight Time does a great job. I think their Blu-rays are way overpriced, though, personally, compared to other Blu-rays out there. Yeah, I think that's that's going to be your best, your best bet right now. I'm kind of surprised. I guess that's not part of Shout Factories yet. Nonetheless, uh, definitely worth tracking that down and adding it to your collection. Definitely. All right. Shall we take a break? I think we shall, and we'll uh, come back and leap ahead to 1965 and Sherlock versus Jack the Ripper. If you are a woman, you walk these streets at your peril. For this is London's Whitechapel in the time of Jack the Ripper, one of the world's most infamous killers. Come now, follow me. Don't leave my side for a single moment. This is where Jack the Ripper once walked, the back alleys he prowled. The bawdy spit and sawdust haunts he knew. Who was Jack the Ripper? Only one man thought he knew the answer. His address? 221B Baker Street, please, Kevin. His name was Sherlock Holmes. I have reason to assume a connection between this case of surgical instruments and your local murders, Mr. Baker. That's slander. Talk like that can get you through. No, sir. Talk like that can get you hanged. Sherlock Holmes, a genius at detecting the improbable and solving the impossible. Incredible. Elementary, my dear Watson. Dr. Watson, the other half of this fantastic partnership. 
a study in terror in the brawling, gaslit back streets of London's East End. This is Carfax, who helped Holmes more than he knew. Chunky, who knew one of the victims very well. And Murray, the doctor, whose tongue was as sharp as his scalpel. One man has made us news. <laughs> to seize a defenseless female, to stifle her cries, and then has God destroyed Sodom and the city of Gomorrah. A study in terror. This butcher boy has the government, has all of us on the edge of a knife. Only this morning, three more men were attacked in the streets of London. These were the women who lived in the shadow of the Ripper. The redhead, once famed for her beauty. The gay, buxom little blonde. The kind of provocative women the Ripper loved. Till murder did them part. It's true these murders are the work of a madman, but a madman with certain medical skills, considerable intelligence and education. Then if you're right, Mr. Holmes, it brings us back to the doctors. Don't be too sure, Lestrade. never see anything like it this side of hell. In this original story, not based on the works of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, John Neville plays Sherlock Holmes and Donald Houston plays Dr. Watson. Here, the famous detective is on the hunt for the famous serial killer, Jack the River. Rich, this is a definitely a change in tone and presentation uh, of the three movies that we watched. Uh, very 60s, kind of reminded me of early 70s in a bit, a, a bit. More graphic for sure. What is your overall take? I will be upfront and honest that <laughs> I wanted to pick Jack the Ripper because I knew that Sherlock battled Jack the Ripper I went with this one because I just I was thinking, you know, go from the 40s to the 50s to the 60s. After the fact, I regret not doing Murder by Decree in 1979. That's a better, a much better version of Sherlock Holmes and a much better film, personally. I mean, you got Christopher Plummer playing Sherlock in that movie, who is leaps and bounds better than John Neville. I struggled with this one. It had been a while since I'd seen it, and I, I remembered liking it, but then um, I didn't dislike this movie, but I guess having seen Basil Rathbone and Peter Cushing, your, your expectations were a lot higher, and I, I went in thinking, okay, let's get this going, and then I'm like, it, it fell flat for me. Um, it, it didn't hold up nearly as well, uh, and certainly not coming in right after... Basil Rathbone and, and Peter Cushing, I don't think. John Neville, there's a reason he only did one Sherlock Holmes film uh, and never returned to the role. Um, I just didn't really get pulled in to his portrayal of, of Sherlock. It just, ultimately, it, it, it wasn't the worst I've seen, but it, it, it didn't work for me on, on uh, some levels. Well, I obviously, I believe I liked this movie more than you did, but it's not really for the Sherlock Holmes aspects. 
the the first half or so I really enjoyed. I think the the parts featuring Jack the Ripper and focusing on the murders were very fast paced, very entertaining. But somewhere along the way, it just started grinding and became very slow. And looking back, that is probably the part where it sort of shifted and, and focused on the investigation with Sherlock Holmes. Then it got real serious, sort of, I mean, very political. And that usually turns me off. I mean, I, I get it, but I'm not really sure I'm interested in the, in the politics of Jack the Ripper and the implications of that being tied into a story like this. So that was kind of odd. And yet, on the other hand, there's odd humor thrown into this movie. There's two particular scenes that that I thought were really funny. Well, they were trying to be funny. I didn't find them funny. One was when they are examining a, a dead body and there's this uh, assistant. I, kind, I called him a hunchback assistant. I don't know if really he was, but definitely this person that has something wrong with him. He's fondling the feet of this body. And so the, uh, the police surgeon that's doing the autopsy kind of, you know, takes his hands off of that. I thought that was very odd. And then there was a scene uh, in the pub where uh, there's two musical numbers in this. So I guess you could call this a Sherlock Holmes musical. This woman's performing a song in the pub and they show a table with two older women, women sitting there. One sets her drink down. The other one reaches over, you know, sneaks her glass away, takes a sip and puts it back. And I'm just not sure what the point of those little bits of humor were thrown in. So very uneven and not by any means a very good movie, but I, I kind of enjoyed it. There were parts of it that I liked. I think the, you know, I didn't, like I said, I didn't hate all of it. I thought the story, I agree. There were, there were parts of the, of the, of the story where it just kind of drug on. You can have Sherlock investigating and make it exciting. A good mystery writer has the ability to do that. You don't need nonstop action to tell a good tale. If you can write mystery well, then, and you've got a, a character like Sherlock, it can be just as exciting, you know, as if you've got some big dramatic chase happening or big action sequence. Uh, and I think that's where, when you look at who wrote the story, there were two men who wrote it and then one uh, who was uncredited. So it was a Donald Ford, Derek Ford, and Jim O'Connelly. And none of them really have any huge film credits. Donald Ford did a lot of TV work. Derek Ford did some TV. Really the only movie that really kind of caught my eye, the, the stuff that he did, was uh, Don't Open Till Christmas in 1984. And I was like, I remember that film. I was like, ah, that's kind of a, not a horrible film, but not not something that you would want to be the standout film if someone was looking at your credits. And then Jim O'Connelly, who is uncredited, I'm not sure why. A couple of genre-related films, Blood Beast from Outer Space, which I honestly don't think I've ever heard of, and Tower of Evil, which I have heard of. That's a movie that has a few different names. I looked at the director, James Hill. Again, not a lot of big movie credits, but a Doctor Who connection, which I thought was funny. He directed a lot of the Wurzel Gummidge series, which is the the kid series where the third doctor, John Pertwee, plays a scarecrow named Wurzel Gummidge. 
not saying anything against a director who is directing a theatrical film and then ends up directing a kid's television series. There's nothing wrong with that. But, I mean, there, there's a reason why if you make a big movie that, you know, you're not getting another one or another one after that. And, and, and Study in, uh, and Terror was not, generally not, as, not very well received by, by the audience at the time. I think when you take a look at, at, at the direction and the story, I think that kind of plays into why the movie tends to drag at one point. I don't think you had writers who knew how to write a good mystery. There was a story here that ultimately wasn't told very well. I think that's why the movie suffered for me. I struggled through those parts where it was kind of just dragging on because I'm, I wasn't seeing a witty Sherlock Holmes, which Sherlock can be, right? You know, as he's investigating, you know, he's, he does, doesn't have to be maniacal or crazy, but in his, you know, investigation, Sherlock has a way of investigating when it's done right in, in the written form or on screen. And I, don't, I just didn't see that in this movie. And so that's where I think it, it kind of fell on the writing, the directing and, and, uh, even John Neville's portrayal as uh, as Sherlock. Yeah, I have a quote here from the book about the script. Um, talks about a rather contrived and unconvincing exposition that brings the film to its close. The script certainly has its merits. It is commendable, for instance, in the way in which the writers, Derek and Donald Ford, managed to blend the authentic details of the Ripper murders, including the letter, with the fictitious plot. But in general, its convoluted and contrived path was detrimental to the effectiveness of the film. Apparently, the producers wanted to present the detective in a new light. They said he was no longer to be the old fuddy-duddy Holmes, as the public had tended to classify him in the past. He is now way out and with it. And then the author comments, the last thing Conan Doyle's Holmes would wish to be is with it. And then finally, the experiment does not come off. Holmes emerges without the mystic authority and towering intellectualism that the character demands. I, I don't think Sherlock Holmes has ever been considered a fuddy-duddy. <laughs> I've never thought of him that way. Uh, and yeah, I'm not sure you want a, uh, a Sherlock who's with it, you know, and, and is he's real in, man. Let, let's let's. let's solve the crime no that's that's 60s talk yeah. there so on all of that yeah but a couple things in the credit that i noticed watching the beginning credits i saw that the hairstylist was gladys leaky and that last name leaky really caught my mind because i think of phil leaky who worked for hammer and did the curse of frankenstein makeup sure enough they were married so I, I was so proud of this little discovery. I had to do some digging, but I finally found it. And I just thought, well, that's really interesting here. You've got a married couple and the, the man does the makeup and the woman does the hair. That's, that's quite a team. I could not determine that they ever worked together on a film, which I thought was kind of interesting. But anyway, I also thought it was interesting that the producer was Henry Cohen. We've talked about him before. He did Conga. He produced all those uh you know, I was a teenage Frankenstein, how to make a monster, all of those blood of Dracula. He produced those. Uh, so that, that was kind of interesting. And I think there's a little bit of his sensibility in this movie, uh, especially with the Jack the Ripper parts. And then of course, to me, the most impressive credit is that this movie features Judy Dench. Now she's Jane Judy Dench. This was 
I believe her second movie. So she's looking very young, but she's still very recognizable. Um, she has a pretty key part, not in it a lot, but it was certainly fun to see her. And it, it gave my mom a reason to join me in watching this movie because she loves Judy Dench. So just a, yeah, it's such a, a mishmash of things uh, of cast and crew and story. And I think it's an interesting effort. I did in, enjoy it, but yeah, the least, least favorite of the three. You mentioned the cast. I mean, there's definitely besides Judy Dench. I mean, there's some people that you might recognize. Um, Donald Houston, I think did it. He did an okay job as Watson Nothing compared to, in my opinion, to Andre Morel uh, or Nigel Bruce, who, again, does his own take of Watson, but makes it memorable. You know, looking at his credits, I mean, he had a, a few things, Hammer-related, uh, Viking Queen, Maniac. Uh, he was in Clash of the Titans, the original. Lots of TV work. John Frazier played Lord Carfax. Another Doctor Who connection there. He played in the... Tom Baker's final story, Legopolis. He was also in another Sherlock uh, production. He played an Uncle Gideon in a uh, young Sherlock series in 1982 that I'd never heard about. Of course, Anthony Quayle played Dr. Murray, well-known actor for films like Lawrence of Arabia, Guns of Navarone, The Eagle Has Landed. Barbara Windsor played the character of Annie Chapman, and I'm sure people maybe over in the UK would recognize her. She was in over 1500 episodes of EastEnders, which is a hugely popular like primetime soap opera, essentially. Mm -hmm. And she was also in Warzel Gummidge. <laughs> she played the character of Saucy Nancy. Uh, <laughs> yes. And that's a character in a, in a kid's show folks, Saucy Nancy. Now, Frank Finley played Inspector Lestrade, and I, I think he did a good job. Again, not my favorite portrayal, but I think he did well enough. He's got some interesting credits because he also plays Lestrade again in Murder by Decree in 79, the other Jack the Ripper movie. So that really makes me want to see Murder by Decree now even more to, and do kind of a compare and contrast of his portrayal of Lestrade in those films. Uh, he was also in The Deadly Bees. He was in Count Dracula, 1977 version with Louis Jordan. He played Jacob Marley in uh, Christmas Carol opposite George C. Scott in 84. He was in Life Force. And he was also Porthos in The Three Musketeers in 73, The Four Musketeers in 74, and The Return of the Musketeers in 89, all of which starred, of course, Christopher Lee, and uh, me, <laughs> Richard Chamberlain. And of course, um, Mycroft, which we haven't really talked about Mycroft because he hasn't been seen in the other two films. He has a smaller role here, but Mycroft is Sherlock's brother. And Mycroft is involved in the British government and is always kind of, you know, he will periodically appear as... Uh, you know, help getting Sherlock's involved in matters of state plays a much bigger part in the Sherlock series with Benedict Cumberbatch and a very different version of Mycroft in that one. Because in that one, he is he's skinny. I think there's even a reference maybe at one point that he was a fat kid or something. He is usually viewed as a, uh, or portrayed as a rather stout gentleman, rather portly. 
and he's played here wonderfully by uh, Robert Morley, who uh, I, for, I think for, for since I've seen this movie recently, uh, just immediately when I see Robert Morley, I think of Meredith Merydew in uh, Theater of Blood opposite Vincent Price. Yeah, Robert Morley's always fun in whatever he does. He's just over the top. But I will say this about John Neville. I'm not a huge fan of his Sherlock, but looking at his credits, there was a few things and one particular performance that I would never have known it was him. So he played the well-manicured man in eight episodes of the X-Files. Yes. Um, He was the lead in The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. In 1988, he was in The Fifth Element. He was also a character called Dr. Thorndike in a series called The Rivals of Sherlock Holmes, which is generally, this has been done more than once, uh, essentially taking a look at other detectives at the same time period of Sherlock Holmes, thus The Rivals. But he also played Sir Isaac Newton in an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. There is a sequence where Data is on the holodeck playing poker with, I know, Sir Isaac Newton and, oh gosh, uh, Stephen Hawking and somebody else, I think. I can't remember who. Anyway, it's just a brief sequence, and obviously he's older and made up to look like Sir Isaac Newton, but that's an interesting credit to have. That was uh, the episode Descent Part 1. So another, another Star Trek reference to wrap things up uh, as we get towards the end of this episode. I think Doctor Who and Star Trek are well represented. I'm not sure, you know, the, the, the new stuff we recorded for last month, I don't think we mentioned anything about Doctor Who and Star Trek, and I can't remember if when we originally did Frankenstein, The True Story, that there was any Doctor Who or Star Trek references. I'm having to think there must have been something, but maybe not. So maybe, you know... This is making up for not talking about it last month. I barely remember an episode that does not have a reference. So I'm sure we covered it, in, especially if it was a British production. Yes, yes. That's about all I have on Study and Terror. I, you know, it's it's not the worst Sherlock Holmes tale by far. There's There are certainly worse out there. It's not the best. I think it's, it's okay. I just, I didn't enjoy it as much. And I think mostly because I had just seen... Basil Rathbone and Peter Cushing. And so that really kind of elevated. I might go back and visit this later when I haven't watched any other Sherlock Holmes and I might appreciate it more, but that probably hurt it coming, coming on the heels of the other two movies. It is out there on Blu-ray though. So if you're a completist like me, it certainly is out there. Can't remember the studio that put it out. Was it Kino Lorber? Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. I bought the Blu-ray and it sits in my shelf at home in Minnesota. I was able to find a very decent copy on YouTube, and that's what I watched last night. Uh, I'm checking online real quick to see which company put out Study and Terror. I want to be able to speak on this, and it looks, oh, it's real cheap right now. Less than $10 on uh, Amazon. Let's see here. It looks like it came out from, oh, Mill Creek. Hmm. So it Mill Creek put it out, uh, and it's super cheap right now. So, yeah, definitely worth less than 10 bucks for Mill Creek. You know what this really leaves me wondering, though? What else was happening in the year 1965 when this movie came out? You know, usually we lead with that, and we didn't. So I'm just really – I'm really wondering, what, what else was happening, Richard? It just so happens I have the information right in front of me. Amazing. 
And I know. Wonderful how it works like that. What happened in 1965? Guess what? Gas was 31 cents. I paid $1.24 for gas the other day with a little bit of discount courtesy of Price Chopper. So that's the cheapest I have bought gas in quite a long time. Wow. Yeah. And I'm not driving anywhere right now. That's the, that's the funny thing. <laughs> yeah, the, that's odd in itself that you bought gas. <laughs> that was my first time in uh, almost seven weeks. So, hmm. yeah, it tells you how far I've, I've gone from home in the last month and a half. So a new house was $13,600. The race riots were happening in Watts, 34 people dead. That's uh, a lot of civil rights happening at this time period. I was really, it's one of those historical things that you know of, but then when you read it, it just always boggles my mind that the 1965 Voting Rights Act guaranteed African-Americans the right to vote. That's just two years before I was born. That is insane that that it took that long for that to even come into place. That just boggles my mind even now. And of course, the big civil rights march at uh, Selma to Montgomery, Alabama. We had troops being sent to Vietnam. But on a brighter note, the Gateway Arch in St. Louis was completed. And then, of course, the maple leaf became Canada's new national flag symbol. Lyndon B. Johnson was president. Harold Wilson was the UK prime minister. I wonder who the queen was in 1965. <laughs> hmm. Can I take a guess? Yeah. Was it Queen Elizabeth? I Ding, ding, ding. Give that man a prize. Yes, she was the queen. Uh, there was the Palm Sunday tornado breakout. 51 tornadoes in six states left more than 250 people dead and 1,500 people injured. Uh, one of the worst tornado outbreaks in the history of the U.S. The daytime uh, soap opera Days of Our Lives debuted in 1965. Popular books of the day included Dune by Frank Herbert and The Man with the Golden Gun, the latest James Bond book by Ian Fleming. Popular music of the day, I Can't Get No Satisfaction by the Rolling Stones, Mr. Tambourine Man, not by William Shatner, but by the birds. Um, Help, Ticket to Ride, and Yesterday were all big hits by the Beatles. Interesting that after all these years, here we are in uh, 2020, and the number one song on iTunes this past week was Living in a Ghost Town by the Rolling Stones. They just put out a new song recorded during the stay-at-home orders and is about the ghost towns that we're seeing with uh, the coronavirus. Interesting how they are still going strong. The number one song of the year was a song that never hit number one on the charts. And for some reason, I thought this was a lot older than 1965. Wooly Bully by Sam the Sham and the Pharaohs. A song that would have been in the 50s. But 65. Yeah. And uh, for jazz aficionados... One of the all-time best jazz albums, A Love Supreme by John Coltrane, was released in 65. It is considered uh, one of the uh, definitive jazz albums of all time. Uh, in the movie theaters, uh, we were singing along to the sounds of music, Mary Poppins and My Fair Lady. And of course, I think probably the best James Bond movie, Goldfinger, with Sean Connery, was released. For horror movie fans, we got films like Beach Girls and the Monster, 
Dr. Terror's House of Horrors, Gamera the Giant Monster, Incubus with William Shatner, Captain Kirk of Star Trek, one more Trek reference, Planet of the Vampires, Nightmare Castle, The Skull, and Die, Monster Die, with uh, Boris Karloff, <laughs> with the top horror films of the year 1965. That's what was happening so many years ago. Fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. We've got a couple things to do. We've got uh, the voicemail from Bill Mize. So why don't we play that? Uh, we'll take a quick break. And then when we come back, might we have the lovely Carla with us? I believe we're going to have a guest appearance. Let's thank Bill in advance because uh, I did not listen to this uh, voicemail yet. I think it focuses heavily on study and terror and I didn't want his wise, wise opinions to affect mine in any way. So thank you for sending that, Bill. We're, we're going to play it now, and we'll see if you line up with us or not on your thoughts on it. Hello, my Rich. Hello, my Jeff. It's your boy Bill Mize over at the Bill Watches Movies podcast. And as threatened, I am calling in with some observations and feedback regarding your Sherlock Holmes triple feature. I love that you've plucked three distinct cherries from the tree. We've got Rathbone, we've got Lee and Cushing, and we've got our third contestant, A Study in Terror. I'm going to focus my comments on the last horse in the race because, well, Rathbone, Cushing, Lee, you've got good things to say about those three, well, join the club. You've got bad things to say about those three, well, pistols at dawn with the rest of the internet. So yeah, we're going to discuss amongst ourselves 1965's A Study in Terror, starring John Neville as Holmes and Donald Houston as Watson. Now, as with any target, there are some hits and some misses. We're going to start with the hits first to keep it positive. To me, this film is what I would call hammer light, as opposed to hammer. We have the same bright colors, sharp focus, and impeccable sets that the folks over at Bray Studios cranked out for years. We have wonderful music from John Scott, and at, at least according to Wonkypedia, this was his first film score, or at least the first one that they mention. The filmmakers have created a wonderful world, a wonderful stage for our actors to create within, but now we come to the swings and misses of this film. The first one I'm going to mention is the confinement. This thing clocks in at a pretty thin 95 minutes, which means that we don't have a lot of time for dawdling or navel-gazing. The game is afoot, and there's a crime or several crimes to be solved. This gives the film a choppy, rushed feeling that basically has our lukewarm Holmes and buffoonish Watson running from set to set, gathering clues, having a spot of tea or gruel and church hymns before running to their next appointed spot in the screenplay. I mentioned our actors above, and based on what I see on the screen, I would not trust these two to get me off death row. I assumed that I would meet the hangman's noose around minute 96 or 97. 
to improve this movie, I think we would really need to decant it and give it more time to breathe. I think that you knock it up to 120 minutes, take your time, relax, and allow for mystery and growth. You allow for an organic mystery to take place before your very eyes. Now, this was the era of the Ten Commandments and Lawrence of Arabia. So longer movies were not unheard of, but they tended to be grand spectacles as opposed to a period piece in London involving the world's first consulting detective and Jack the Ripper, and, well, that's a shame. If I were going to sew together a perfect movie, I think I'd make this one longer, give it a better script, recast the leads, and make it a kind of from hell with a hammer sensibility and style. Now, anyone out there who hasn't read Alan Moore and Eddie Campbell's graphic novel of The Ripper and the Royals, grab a copy now. You will not regret it. You will, however, in my opinion, regret watching the Johnny Depp movie of the same name, loosely, very loosely, based on the source material. Okay, there's my two tuppence, gentlemen. Thank you, as always, for your kindness and support of my show and allowing me to come on yours and occasionally pontificate. I do hope that you and your families are doing well during this challenging time, and I also hope that things are calm enough this summer so we can stand six foot away from each other at Monster Bash. Y'all take care. Welcome back, and I'd like to welcome a very special guest. We have Carla Chamberlain, Mrs. Richard Chamberlain, who I just have to say has been a joy getting to know and to meet through Richard. I met Richard just soon before he met Carla and the change I saw in him and the love and joy he has in his life now because of her is, it's wonderful to see uh, as an outsider. So uh, this is long overdue, Carla. I'm glad you're spending a little bit of your time with with the likes of uh, us on this podcast. So welcome. Thank you. It's good to be on. And, and I just have one question. I know Richard's got most of the questions for you, but why did you pick uh, this as our topic? I know it's your birthday month. I don't mean that, but why Sherlock Holmes? Um, I've always liked Sherlock Holmes because I like mysteries and like dark house things and a lot of his are, are that way. And I hadn't really watched a lot of the older ones before we started watching these. We I watched mostly the like the Benedict Cumberbatch new ones, which I really loved, and a little bit of um, what's the other one? Elementary. Yeah, Elementary. You said you really which liked is, Elementary, which is really different. It goes into his drug addiction a lot, lot more than any of the other ones. It's just Richard said he had the collection, and it's been something I've been wanting to watch for some time, and so I thought, well, we'll do that one then. Well, you like mysteries. You really like the Thin Man series. Yes, I love the Thin Man series. And so that I think that was the thing that attracted you. You like murder mysteries, and that's... We had just watched Knives Out. Yes, which is really good. Right before. I think that kind of got both of us in the mood for, for Sherlock Holmes, and so we kind of segued from that to watching... 
Well, we watched The House of Fear first, and then we did kind of did it in order, and then we did Hound of the Baskervilles, and then Study in Terror, and then we went back and watched all the rest of the Basil Rathbone ones. Yes, which are really good. I lied. I have one more question, then I promise I'll turn it over to, to your husband. But Carla, could you please compare and contrast the original novel, Hound of the Baskervilles, with all of the versions you've seen, featuring pr- predominantly the Hammer version, because that's the one we watched? Um, the Hammer version, actually, the beginning is really way more graphic than any of the other ones. It really shows the brutality. But I love Peter Cushing, but I was shocked because he's really like only in the beginning and in the end and the rest of the time it's Watson because Sherlock sends him on ahead to throw the killer off. And so it's, it wasn't my favorite version, but I like it. See, that question was intended to throw you off and yet you answered. So (laughs) I know she like totally shut me down. So that's, uh, Great, I'm well, I'm done. Take it away. <laughs> no, we're not doing that. Uh-huh. So, what's your thoughts? I mean, I know it's been a while since we've seen these, but I mean, mm-hmm. comparing like Peter Cushing's portrayal of Sherlock Holmes to Basil Rathbone, because we've seen Peter Cushing do basically two versions of Hound of the Baskervilles. Mm-hmm. What do you think how he does Sherlock? Compared to, oh, and we just got Belle on, on too. She decided to sneeze. I don't know if that picked up or not. So Belle, Belle felt like she needed to get on. What do you think compared Peter Cushing to, to Basil Rathbone? They both actually, I feel like they play them very similar. I think I like Basil Rathbone's better, but I do like Watson in the Peter Cushing one better because I really, while I like the actor in the Basil Rathbone ones, I don't like how Watson is portrayed in those. Yeah, I know you're not a fan of the more, as Jeff and I have talked about, the more kind of buffoon-ish portrayal. Yes, he plays, like, he, like, really stupid. I mean, he's a good actor, and it's not the comedy part of it that I mind so much, but it's the, he seems almost like, he doesn't really solve anything. Sherlock uses him mostly for a, a diversion while he goes and actually solves the mystery. He sends him in to do to do the distraction. And he really comes across as, I mean, like he makes lots of mistakes that can really end up hurting things. What are your thoughts on the third film we watched, The Study in Terror with Sherlock versus Jack the Ripper? Did you like that one? No. Remember? I was like, it didn't stick with you as much. No, I don't remember that one as much. Did you like the part where Jack the Ripper held a woman underwater and his repeated stabbing turned the water red? <laughs> <laughs> Hello? <laughs> I don't remember that. Yeah, I don't think she remembers that part. Of you may have had your hands over your eyes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We know that Carla and, and her aversion to anything graphic and i think she also you like the older movies i mean yes. you're definitely more in tune with older stuff even getting into 60s is too close to the 70s for you <laughs> so yeah and that's yeah. we had talked about jeff before you came on mentioned a quote about how what well, what did you say sherlock's 1965 it was supposed to be more with it 
Less of a less of a fuddy duddy and more with it. They were trying to make Sherlock hip for the mid '60s crowd, uh, well. which I think is why that movie ultimately didn't do very well. Okay, well, Sherlock was your birthday month. We're not going to keep you very long because I know getting you just to this point is a major act of God. The the seas parted and the heavens opened up for this. All to the happen. planets aligned. All the planets aligned. But you've enjoyed our Basil Rathbone journey. Yes, very much. And so now we're uh, we're in the midst of Peter Cushing. So yeah, the TV series. TV series, yeah. And then we'll see where we go next. We're, there's no reason to go chronological, so there's a lot of silent movies. But Carla's like me. is like, I love silent movies, but I do have to be in the right frame of mind to enjoy them. So Especially since we've been doing the Laurel and Hardy We've been, silence. Yeah. <laughs> we've been watching Laurel and Hardy silence, so we've been watching a lot of silent stuff lately. Okay, but you're enjoying Sherlock, and we've got plenty of Sherlock ahead. Yes. Love well, from, from Jeff and I to you, we say happy birthday. Thank you. Yes, and thank you very much. Come back anytime. Okie dokie. That's fine. Well, now is the time in our episode where we move into... New releases coming out on video, May birthdays, May anniversaries, etc., etc. The first couple of weeks of May are very, very light. Uh, nothing uh, genre-related related uh, the first week of May. However, on the 12th, we have one from Mondo Macabro, Satanico Pandemonium. And Richard, I don't imagine you've heard of that. You probably know it by its alternative name, La Sexorcista. I do know that title. <laughs> I know the title. I don't know the movie. That's from 1975. I'm sure that's a typical Mondo Macabro release, which is not always a bad thing. Sometimes that's pretty good. On the 19th, though, we get uh, a whole slew of movies, a, a bunch from Shout Factory, Evil of Frankenstein, Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell, and Danger Diabolique. Uh, all from Shout Factory. And then this is interesting. Mill Creek is releasing a set of all the Inner Sanctum mysteries with Lon Chaney Jr. This is the complete film series, six films. And Richard, I'm putting you on the spot. How many of these six films without looking on the internet do you know? Or how, how many can you name? Um, Frozen Ghost. Uh, the Weird Woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been a long time since I've seen these. Uh, that, that may be it. All right. That's good. You forgot my, uh, favorite, not necessarily movie, but title pillow of death. Yes. There's also calling Dr. Death, dead man's eyes and strange confession. So that's an interesting box set. It, it's a little pricey, but then again, it's six movies, so maybe not. I think it's around 40 bucks. That's not bad. I paid $20 recently for like one movie that didn't have any extras, really. I, I got Supernatural from Kino Lorber for, I guess it was just under 20 uh, And The movie was just over an hour, and there was really nothing extra with it except a trailer. That's unfortunate. We're getting some of these movies where I have a hard time paying $20 for an upgrade to Blu-ray when there's really not much with it. When I know other studios are putting stuff out that have a lot of extras on it, you know, it doesn't require that much effort to find trailers and, uh, and that kind of stuff. I don't think anyway. So 
Yeah, I'm really looking forward to the extras on these Shout Factory Hammer releases that uh, Richard Clemenson and Sam Irvin and everyone are participating in. They're all sitting in home. I pre-ordered them and they're coming in, but uh, I'm not there to receive them. So I'll have a lot of fun when I go back. Yeah. Oh, and I did want to mention we had, I had mentioned last time that there are sales going on and I did take advantage of a Kino Lorber sale. And let me just rattle off the titles here that I got. And I did have them sent here to me, but you know, movies here can sit unwrapped and unwatched just as easily as they can in Minneapolis. But uh, the movies I got were a game of death, which is uh, 1945, sort of a most dangerous game. Yeah. Rip off. Yeah. I got at the earth's core. Amicus Edgar Rice Burroughs movie. Grizzly. I've been wanting to get that for a while, and it was just dirt cheap on on Blu-ray. So I got that. 76, sort of a Jaws ripoff. Um, I got Jennifer, which is a 1978, one of the Exorcist rip-offs. Or not Exorcist, I'm sorry, Carrie rip-offs. This girl can control snakes, I believe. I have a copy of that movie recorded off air from the creature feature with Cremation Mortem from like early eighties off of uh, channel 41 here in Kansas city. I acquired a copy of that. So I'd never heard of the movie. And then I got one that I am not familiar with from 81 called the pit. Don't really know why <laughs> I ordered it other than it was cheap and it looked kind of interesting. So have you ever seen the pit? I have not. So, sorry, I got derailed there. Also, the next week in May, on the 26th, Kino Lorber is releasing In Search of Dracula. It's from 75. It was a series of these, oh, I can't remember the company, but they were putting out these documentaries, sort of sensationalistic topics, um, you know, ones about UFOs and Satan's Triangle and all of those. But this one's In Search of Dracula. And I believe Christopher Lee is the host, narrator, person that kind of holds that thing all together so that could be interesting uh and then also on the 26th kind of a little to the very end uh of our range zombie from 79 and maniac from 1980 are both getting 4k releases from blue underground i've said before not really sure what the whole 4k thing is about however apparently it's a factor in deciding to release movies that have been released several times before. I think my, my thoughts on 4k I've seen, you know, compare and contrast. I think new movies can look amazing in 4k. There's only so much upgrade that they can do to some of these older films. And, you know, you start dealing with having to make tweaks to the film to make it look good on four 4k, much like when we saw zombie, in 4K, a lot of the imperfections are much more visible that were never intended to be visible. Like, you know, where makeup lines and such like that and, and things looking a lot more fake than they would in, in previous versions. I'm not a huge fan of upgrading every single thing to, to I have no 4K, but I just, I can't imagine that that is something that needs to be done. I don't think a lot of upgrades to Blu-ray are that much of an improvement over the, over the DVD. Some are, but there's a lot that aren't 
And so that's I've gotten a lot pickier about what I automatically upgrade on. Stupid question. Do you have to have a 4K TV to realize the benefits of a 4K Blu-ray? You do. You have to have a 4K Blu-ray player, 4K DVD, uh, TV. Oh, my gosh. I think All right. TV coming out now is automatically 4K. All right. Well, done with that one then. Don't need a new TV. In May, we've got that tri whatever you call it when you've got three people that comes around every May. Fantastic horror greats all born in May. Peter Cushing, May 26th, 1913. Vincent Price, May 27th, 1911. And Christopher Lee, May 27th, 1922. In honor of their birthdays, I thought for anniversaries of movies released, I would do only ones that one or more of those people have starred in. On May 3rd, 1960, The Two Faces of Dr. Jekyll came out. That was with Christopher Lee not playing Dr. Jekyll or Mr. Hyde. Horror of Dracula with both Cushing and Lee, May 8th, 1958. Evil of Frankenstein, May 8th, 1964. Witchfinder General, here's Vincent Price, May 15th, 1968. Cash on Demand with Peter Cushing, May 16th, 1962. Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed, another Frankenstein movie with Peter Cushing, May 22nd, 1969. That's the UK release date. And then Madhouse, May 24th, 1974 with Peter Cushing and Vincent Price. May is a great month. We have, in fact, done an episode devoted to these three men and the movies they've made. That brings us then to ask the eternal question. What's up with Richard? What are you working on these days? Um, you know, you kind of alluded to it earlier. April turned out to be a busy month from a podcast perspective. It just kind of happened. I, I found myself on on multiple podcasts. So I, I want, you know, openly thank uh, Derek for having me back on Monster Kid Radio to talk Beast in the Beginning of Time. It was also featured on his Ghost of Social Distance Saturday. And so I did a little bit of chatting in that room uh, last week when that happened. And of course, being on the, the Diecast movie review, talking about Seven Seal, and was on Dread Media talking about Wolf Cop on the uh, April twenty seventh episode of Dread Media. I hadn't been on there for quite a while. Memiverse and multiple episodes of the Classic Horror Club. April it ended up being kind of a busy month. May I think is going to be a little calmer from the podcast world. That said, going to be celebrating the films of Vincent Price. We had five movies left over from our countdown to Halloween that didn't really fit into that. And so in the month of May, we're going to be taking a look at those five films. Leave Her to Heaven, The Baron of Arizona, The Big Circus, The Jackals, and The Whales of August to kind of wrap up our Vincent Price celebration during Vincent Price Month. Over at Old Time Radio Wednesdays, I did a lot of Frankenstein in the month of April, and so kind of keeping with the theme of tying things in together, I'm going to be a couple of Vincent Price in the month of May. I'm going to be doing Laura and Dragonwick, and then a couple of Sherlock Holmes. The immortal Sherlock Holmes, a 1938 broadcast with Orson Welles as Sherlock Holmes, and then a uh, 1977 adaptation of The Hound of the Baskervilles from the CBS Radio Mystery Theater. We'll also be starting off our summer with Stan and Ollie. Last summer, we did the films of the Marx Brothers. This year, we're doing the films of Laurel and Hardy. 
as Carla alluded to, we've been watching lots of silent Laurel and Hardy shorts. What we're going to be reviewing on uh, Kansas City Cinephile at kccinephile.com are the movies. We're not going to be covering every all of the short subjects. That'd be way too much. But we're going to be uh, we're watching everything chronologically, and then but we're going to be formally reviewing the movies. So we're starting off. Uh, if all goes well, May seventh. We'll be doing this on Thursdays with uh, their first movie, Pardon Us, from 1931, uh, or their first movie with them in the lead, I should say. And uh, it'll take us all the way through to the uh, end of summer and in late September with their very last film, Atoll K, from 1951, I believe. So uh, other than that, yeah, just watching lots of Laurel and Hardy and, and watching movies and hunkering down in the midst of the uh, corona apocalypse, all is well here in Kansas City. How about you? I look forward to all of that, by the way, and have enjoyed uh, what I have, what little I have heard from you. I do try to keep up with Monster Kid Radio since that's weekly, and if I get behind on that, I may never get caught up. So I'm about halfway through your episode on the Beast from the Beginning of Time or, or whatever that is. So anyway, always enjoy your stuff. So keep it up. Uh, for me on ClassicHorrors.club, uh, I've been doing reviews on Monday. I was radio silent on all my sites and stuff this week. I just, it's the first time I can remember in a long time. I just simply did not have time to watch and write and, and post, but uh, I'm, I'm, I'm ahead. I took a day off, so we'll kick back up this week, uh, which will be a week already passed when you listen to this. But anyway, Monday, uh, I'm doing this. I've mentioned before that I participate in uh, Kitley's Crypt, the cryptic army, where we have a, a theme every month to watch two movies that you've never seen. The theme for April was Mad Scientists. So I watched, sad to say, I had never seen these movies. I had never seen The Ape Man and Return of the Ape Man with Bella Lugosi. So uh, I watched those and those reviews will be up uh, on Monday, April 27th. Wednesdays at DC Comics Guy, I am wrapping up the Wonder Woman Without Powers series. A couple of weeks only are left on that. Not sure what I'm going into next, but lots of possible DC Comics vintage topics that I want to eventually visit. I I am woefully behind on that series. I... I'm going to be catching up uh, hopefully this week. I, I Every time I attempt it, I get behind. I've loved what you did in the start of that. So I'm, I'm looking forward to, to wrapping that up and, and what you do next. Oh, thanks. And then Fridays on ClassicHorrors.club, the TV Terror Guide, I have finished my series on Kolchak the Night Stalker. Wasn't real sure what I was going to do next, but I think I'm going to dig in and do, I've wanted to do this for a long time, just those great 70s TV movies. So... I think, uh, of course, that spawned such, you know, legit movies like Trilogy of Terror and The Night Stalker, but a bunch of good movies that came out during that time. And, of course, it'll be a matter of finding them and uh, depending where I am and how can I, I can access those. But I think that's what I'm going to dig into next for a few weeks is just a movie of the week because I love those. I know we probably can't say much about it, Richard, but you and I are working on a top secret project that we both will be contributing to. So I'm looking forward to news about that coming out and where we can start talking about that a little more. I can say that I just sent mine off this morning. Still, I guess, on target, but 
a lot farther behind than I had hoped to be. Life has been busy and then it hasn't been. And then it's like, it's busy during the day. And then at night, I just, I'm in a veg mode. So I've been posting stuff, obviously, and keeping up with the, with the blogs, but a lot of that stuff was, was a, a little bit easier to do and didn't require as much thought as I wanted to put into that. But I, I wrapped mine up this morning. I too am looking forward to what we see uh, somewhere down the pike on that. I think that'll be, uh, it'll be fun. And we'll be able to talk more about that when it becomes more official. Yeah, I think I like the concept and the the implications for the future on that. So uh, I was thrilled to be able to take part in that. And what I'm also thrilled to be taking a part in is future episodes this summer, because I think we've got a fantastic theme uh, that's going to carry us through the next three episodes. You want to talk a little more about that, Richard? Yeah, I, I had this epiphany as I was driving home back in the before time when we worked in the office. Um, <laughs> the before time. Yes. I I had this idea for something fun to do over the summer. You know, over, you know, like I, we just talked about I, at the blog last year, Carl and I did the, the films of, of the Marx brothers and it was fun to do that in the summer. And it was just, it went over the course of several months, obviously. And it was fun and doing Laurel and Hardy. I'm looking forward to that. It's just a fun journey. And I thought, we could do something similar to that on the podcast. And, and uh, I threw the idea out at you and we've kind of fleshed it out. And so what we're going to be doing, and I think it's timely, right? Because movie theaters are closed, but the first movie theaters that are going to reopen are going to be drive-ins. In fact, some drive-ins are open as we speak. There's a handful that have managed to stay open, but as the weather warms up, drive-in theaters are going to be able to be open before traditional theaters. They can easily allow cars to come in. Uh, they don't even have to open their concession stand. Uh, and everyone can enjoy a movie together, but in the safety of their car. And so we're going to be kind of doing the same thing all summer long. We're going to be going to the drive-in. We're going to be throwing in uh, familiar uh, you know, sound bites from the drive-in intermission cartoons, which I think is almost the most fun part about going to a drive-in. I love all those classic intermission uh, reels and the welcome to the drive-in stuff. I think that's going to be fun. And uh, we've also got a really cool lineup of, of movies that we're going to be showing. And what we're doing is the movies we are going to be pl- are talking about are from actual drive-in programs at a specific drive-in, doing a search online for classic movie uh, or classic drive-in movie uh, theater uh, ads, that's where we got our selection of films. Each month we'll be going to a particular drive-in. I'll be throwing out a little bit of info about the drive-in theater that we're highlighting that month and, and, you know, is it still open when it, when it closed, all that kind of fun stuff. And uh, we're going to be kicking off next month with a Double feature. I guess we normally do three films, but this was only a double feature that played. I'm sure we'll fill it up with something that extra time. But we're going to be talking about, I think, two classic films. The Blob and I Married a Monster from Outer Space, uh, both from 1958. And I think that is going to be a lot of fun. If I remember correctly, that's from a movie theater in Florida that was actually only open for seven years. And under three different ownerships. So uh, I'm doing a little bit of research into that and see what I can find out about it. That's going to be our double feature next month, and I'm looking forward to it. 
it's been a long time since I've seen the blob and that's uh, that movie's a lot of fun with a lot of, a lot of cool history behind it. So that is what we're going to do in the summer months here. We're going to be taking the clubhouse to the drive-in. Oh, I'm looking forward to it too. I love the idea and, and love the work you already put in on finding these, the, the programming. And just to remind everyone as we close that we do have the Classic Horrors Club hotline that you can call 616-649-2582, 616-649-CLUB. Leave a voicemail. You can email us classichorrorsclub at gmail.com. Facebook group page, all kinds of ways that you can get hold. And we do appreciate your feedback. We appreciate the feedback in this episode and invite you to leave even more that we can incorporate in the show. If you find it in your heart and have a moment, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. We would appreciate that. Any other business, Rich, before we go out on uh, this great song that I've chosen? No, just hope everybody is staying safe. You know, there's all sorts of talk about things beginning to open up, but uh, I think everyone is still kind of hunkering down for the moment. Just everyone stay safe out there. And as always, thank you for your ongoing support. Yes. All right. So this song I chose not necessarily because of the title or the artist, although those are appropriate, but by the name of the album, which I've enjoyed very much. So this is Sherlock Holmes by Sparks from their 1982 album, Angst in My Pants. And that is available, as are all of our songs on Apple Music. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll see you next month.